With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 156 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park. We got deep producing. Uh... And we have a special guest tonight, uh, Drew Mullins. And I want to apologize first off to Drew for wasting some of his time last night and also everyone else who tuned in. Uh, we take a lot of pride in doing a consistent, well-produced show every Friday, 8 p.m. We're there. And uh, last night we screwed up. It's not Drew's fault. It was totally us. We, had some, we moved into a new studio. We have some technical issues to iron out. Um, but I'm really glad that we did. We did a lot of work today. Got a lot of things accomplished, and I'm just glad we're all here, and I'm really glad that Drew is here with us. Drew uh, is a former Navy SEAL. He went through Bud's Class 156, which coincides with this episode. Uh, you can see that back there, his helmet back there in, uh, on, in his office. And uh, Drew went on to serve in a JSOC special mission unit. Uh, did some of the AFO mission over in Iraq in 2003 with some other previous guests of the show. Uh, so we're really excited to have you here today. Drew, thank you so much for uh, taking some time out of your Saturday. Hey, hey guys, thanks thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. And, and thank you for joining us even after we consistently <laughs> blamed you for all of our problems last night and it turned out to be us. I thought it was me. I did. I thought... You know what a shit show I, I was. You know, representing. You know, like like he said <laughs> repeatedly, this has never happened before. So I felt good. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sorry, man. Yeah. No, yeah, it, 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 it it has. We've never had to uh, reschedule a show like that before. But hey, shit we happens. Made Drew jump, jump through. Uh, uh, I, it was so many it was, hoops. It was. Last de- it, it was definitely not on Drew's end. Um, yeah. So Drew, to kick off the show, I'm going to ask you yeah. kick kick to you the same question we ask really most of our guests is about your origin story. If you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing, how you grew up, and sort of what that path was that took you towards military service. Okay, so uh, having listened to some of your other guests, I won't go through the whole retirement speech type version of what got me here. But um, grew up in California. Um, 
on the beach in California. And uh, I was born and raised there. My dad was in the Navy in the 60s for about eight years. So I was born on a, on a Navy base, uh, as were three of my other brothers <clears throat> and sister. Um, and uh, just had a kind of a normal childhood, I guess. Um, but then my parents got divorced. And um, so there was four of us. And uh, just as, uh, you know, life would have it, we kind of had to just fend for ourselves. But uh, great, great upbringing, played a lot of sports um, <clears throat> and uh, worked in the oil fields for a while. And in the mid to mid 80s, uh, I was a young man and kind of drifting. Um, I was playing rugby with, uh, I started playing rugby after college and uh, had, a lot, had a lot of fun. I met uh, some, some of the guys on our team just happened to be uh, Vietnam era SEALs. So, and I didn't really know what a frogman was. I mean, back then you didn't know anything about it, <clears throat> UDT or any of that stuff, unless you knew someone. And uh, except for that book, Men with Green Faces or whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> and I was kind of, uh, I was, had gotten into an early marriage. I had a son. Uh, kind of out of wedlock. Um, I was feeling pretty much like a, a deadbeat dad kind of thing. And um, was trying to figure out how to, how to navigate the waters as a, as a young man. And one of the, one of the games we had, we were down in San Diego and this, my mentor, the guy who saved my life, basically Eddie farmer, shout out to Eddie farmer. Um, he'd get together when we play the other team and, and there'd be other guys he knew from Vietnam and they start telling these stories. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, you know, like crashed helos with OGA stuff in it that they had to get out and ambushes and all those kind of things. And, you know, they tell all these stories. And I thought, wow, tell me more about that. Well, it was what it was. And I, and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. And then one day uh, <clears throat> Ed pulled me aside and he kind of had the, the father talk with me because I didn't really have a, strong father figure at the time. And um, <clears throat> I didn't want to repeat some of the same mistakes my that happened to me when my parents broke up. So I figured at least if I joined the Navy, I could uh, take care of my son, you know, pay, uh, pay uh, child support and all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> I went to the recruiter and uh, I was a little bit older. I was 24, I think. And um, he starts, you know, going down the list. Hey, so tell me about, you know, what education you have, what do you do, what kind of jobs you have. And he gets to the part where it's just like, did you ever do any drugs? And I'm like, I looked at him like, are you serious? And I, and he, and he said, yeah, I mean, you know, did you, because I had to choose a rate at the time, you know, it wasn't the pipeline is now. So before that I'd asked him, well, what do the, what do the seals need? And he said, they need corpsmen really bad and they need radio men right now. Um, <clears throat> so I said, oh, I'll be a corpsman. Um, if I get hurt, I can take care of myself. Um, but then when he got to the drug screening parties, he's, he's like, he asked me that question. And I said, uh, and then he said, wait, 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 stop. Before you <laughs> answer that, if you've experimented with anything more than five times, you might not be eligible for the program. Ah, okay. Thanks. Yeah. I experimented with pot five times, whatever. And anything else I'm like, come on, dude, really? Um, he's, and I said, okay, no, anyway, I joined, I made it through that, but I was, let me just say that, you know, it was the eighties and I was, uh, kind of sweating the, um, piss test when I went through MEPS, but I made it, um, and I made a deal with myself. Hey, um, self, 
you're not going to do that shit anymore. You know, you're not going <laughs> to jeopardize you know, the, yeah. your career yeah. uh, for, for that kind of stuff. And, I, and it wasn't a big deal. It was just kind of like the usual West Coast stuff. But I uh, went to Bud's, or actually I went to Corman A School and then uh, went to Bud's, um, classed up um, in the uh, winter of 88 um, with class 153. That was my Hell Week class. Had a hundred, you know, the typical numbers, 160 something, 66, I, I think, uh, guys. And I think 40 made it through Hell Week or something like that. Um, and uh, talk more about it later about like, you know, some of the Bud stuff, but um, made it through Hell Week. I, I got rolled back because I got, I got hurt, but uh, ended up graduating with class 156. And then, uh, you know, started the pipeline, went to airborne school. And I had to, uh, a funny story is uh, I was the only corpsman to graduate uh, from my class. And when orders came out, you know, you, you probably do the same thing in the army. You fill out a dream sheet, like where do you want to go? Right. <clears throat> and I had this girlfriend that at the time I was trying to, you know, put distance between and a uh, nice person. <laughs> I just, just wanted to be free. Um, so I put down every West East coast team, SEAL team I could on my dream sheet. And of course I didn't get orders to the East coast. I got orders to the West coast, but um, uh, the orders were weird because it, it wasn't like SEAL team three, SEAL team one, SEAL team five. It was like some weird name. And uh, you know, the instructors are looking at me like, Hmm, how'd you get those orders? And I'm like, dude, I don't even know what this is. And um so I went and talked to the phase master chief and he said, Hey, uh, that's, uh, that's the cover name for red cell. Right. So I don't know if you know what red cell is, but that was the second Marcinko command that he created. And they were basically the real world kind of up a uh, red team for security, for defenses and things like that for bases. And it, that kind of went sideways a little bit right after that. But so they, they sat me down they said, Hey, this is, these are pretty awesome orders, but, uh, if you want my advice, I mean, you'll, you'll have a lot of fun. You'll get a lot of really high speed schools and you'll get a lot of calls and a bunch of things that you'll really enjoy, but you won't get the opportunity to learn how to be a good frogman. Uh -huh. Okay. Good seal. Cause you know, the pipeline was STT, which is now SQT. I mean, back then, most of us, as you probably know, went, would go to our team, we'd be on probation for six months or, year a year, sometimes longer, depending. And you, you went through advanced training, SEAL tactical training, and um, you're evaluated by your peers, basically. So it was, uh, it was one of those kind of things, which I think is a really good way of doing it. But anyways, they said, yeah, if you do that, you know, you're not going to get the opportunity to really cut your teeth in the traditional way. And, and back then, the, uh, the teams were kind of geographically specialized. Um, so I said, okay, sounds like good advice. Um, but then when I talked to the detailer, he's like, yeah, you're going to SEAL Team 5. And I'm like, it's like right next door, right? You know, in, um, in Coronado. And uh, SEAL Team 8 had just uh, come on board. They just uh, commissioned it and they needed corpsman. So I swapped with a guy and went out to SEAL Team 8, drove my Volkswagen bus all the way across United States with everything I owned straight to airborne school and subsequently 
to Virginia Beach. And did that create the distance with the girlfriend that you needed at the time? Yeah, yeah, I think it did. Uh, I don't know how much further I could have went. And and to be to be quite honest with you, she was a great person. I just wasn't, you know how women. Sure. You, know, you were young. You were a frog. I was man. young. And, yeah. And hot. Right. You know, muscular. No, yeah. 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 Definitely. No, no, you're like a lot of today. like a lot of women deserve all this. Like I right. I can't be selfish and just yeah deprive them go. of this little slice right. of heaven. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There was. There's a lot to conquer still. Um, <laughs> so, but it was, it was good. Um, yeah. There's, and along the way I had some pretty cool adventures, just uh, airport yeah. school was one getting from, getting from there to Virginia beach was another and et cetera. So that's, yes. uh, so, that's it. No, nothing real outstanding, I guess. Um, well, that's, a, that's okay. I mean, let's, let's hear a little bit more about uh, what it was like at SEAL Team 8. I mean, you said you were one of the plank owners of that team since they were just standing it up when you got there. Yeah. And that's something I didn't really realize at the time, because I always thought plank owners were like the people that were on the roster when they actually broke the champagne bottle on the bow of the ship. Right. But it, but technically if you're one of the first people to go there within a, I guess it's within a year first okay. year or whatever, you know, where they're filling out the roster, um, the billets, uh, you're a plank owner. So, um, I haven't really pursued that. Like I'd like to get, you know, some certificate or piece of wood or something, but, uh, yeah. So I show up at Virginia beach and, you know, back then, I don't know if you've ever been to Naval amphibious space, little Creek, but it's changed a lot, of course, but it was just seal team four, uh, team two and SDV two were there. Um, team eight was brand new. And I remember going through the gate and asking someone, Hey, where's still team eight? And the guy, the guard said, go down here, make a left all the way to the end, make another right. You'll be right there. Turn the corner and I see the signs and I see the compound on the left and it's the right, it's the teams, but on the right is a bunch of like a chain link fence and a bunch of trailers, trailer park. And that was teammate. Um, went in and um, checked in and it was, it was an interesting time back in 89, 90, because a bunch of the guys who were there were, had just come back from uh, Persian Gulf. So they did the Iran Ajar and, and, you know, those ops that, that a certain guy named Malcolm says he did, but uh, he didn't. Uh, Yeah. So we had this really kind of a, unique mix of folks there some basically it was known as dump eight at the time right so that's where you kind of like cast off all your you know uh free agents uh that um that you want to get rid of your problem kids at the same time there was a bunch of guys who were really solid who volunteered to go because they wanted to be part of creating a new team so um we had this really eclectic mix of folks and to give you an example of what I, what I mean by eclectic, um, we're in we're at ranks for must, for quarters one morning. XO's up there doing giving the plan of the day, and all of a sudden you hear some of the, these guys like yelling, and all of a sudden whack! I look down the line. There's these guys are in a fist fight, right? You know, like at the end of the line, just beating each other up, and you know, it's over a woman, of course. You know, that's how it works. Um, and I'm like, oh wow, this is awesome. What did I get myself into? But, you know, over time, um, you know, being in the first platoons, uh, it, was, it was fun. You know, it was really cool to learn from some really great, uh, talented guys. And uh, 
started deploying. But, yeah. Uh, what What were the deployments like back then? I mean, like some of the, I mean, you're talking about uh, 1990s now, late 80s, early that's 90s. That's when that's when Charlie Sheen was the SEAL, 1990s. So, some of the guys a little bit before that would say that, you know, back, back in those days, the SEAL teams were basically, you know, a mask, a pair of fins, a snorkel, a weight belt, and a K-bar knife, and not, not a whole lot else. Um, but what, what was your experience like when, when you started deploying with SEAL Team 8? Yeah, it, it actually, uh, my first platoon was, uh, uh, was a, a MARG. So we actually got spun up to go to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So that was, uh, what, 90, 91, mm -hmm. right? 90 was Desert Shield, yeah. And meanwhile, um, at the same time, uh, was the invasion of Panama. So some of the other teams were, you know, SEAL Team 4 was, was doing that. And we had some, some guys get killed down there. Uh, my roommate at the time uh, was a 60-gunner in one of the squads that, took Batia airfield. Uh, he took around it, luckiest guy in the world. I mean, he took around, like imagine you're running and you're, you got your, your legs up in the air and the round went underneath his thigh, missed his balls by an inch and came out the other end of his, of his ass. Um, and, um, when he came back, of course, I, I like telling the story because I had to like change his dressings all the time so i could like, <laughs> stick my hand in his ass the whole time right, right. um changing it uh but uh yeah so we were we thought oh darn we missed our chance to go to war because that's what the mindset was back then it's like dang are we ever gonna go you know that kind mm. of thing like everyone um <clears throat> and we scrambled we deployed to go to turkey and the they started the shock and awe i guess it was you know the air war part mm-hmm and by the time we get to Inserlik, it was over. Right. right. So it was like we're handing out MREs to Kurds and shit, like not trying to step on mines and stuff like that. Pretty uneventful. But we had a, a fun time in the med for the rest of the six months. Um, so you're basically on a MARG. You're with a, a MU, Marine uh, uh, Expeditionary Unit. And um, we got off the ship a lot because we had things, bilats and J-sets and training set up. So... Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we, we trained a lot with uh, other counterparts, the French, Spanish, the Turks. Um, we did Bright Star in Egypt. What a shit show that is, man. Um, uh, <laughs> On the Sinai. Did, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. There's a, we did a jump. You know, one of, the, one of the things you do is that kind of combined thing where you do parachute jumps, static line jumps in the desert. And um, this might have been in another platoon, but I remember we were, in a C-130 and it, the Egyptians must've just like said to the, on their base said, Hey, uh, go get a parachute. You're going to jump with these guys. Right. And so we get up there, every snaps in cause it wasn't free fall. It was just regular static line. And you could tell none of them had ever jumped before. Oh boy. And they were just literally kicking them out the back of the plane. Right. And it was hilarious. Right. Um, and of course we went out too. And, um, yeah, so we had, you know, those kind of shenanigans. Um, but it was, it was good. That's when you, back then you felt like a sailor, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. You know, it's a lost art these days. Um, you know, you, we didn't have internet, you know, yeah. the, you know, mail call was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, perfume and other things inside yeah. packages and you, and, um, selling Copenhagen for $20 a can to ships. <laughs> stuff like that. Um, getting a big package yeah. of rum cake, you know, it's, it's like doused in rum. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like my sister would send me Listerine. Yeah. But it had Jim Beam in it. Yeah. So it was Lister Beam, right? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, typical, typical shenanigans, but uh, got it, got to experience part of the, that part of the world. And uh, maybe a story or two will pop into my head from then, but I just felt, you know, it was, it was. Yeah. You're living the life. Yeah. It was my first deployment. So, um, and then uh, spun right back around um, and uh, got ready to do another one. And so the second platoon was a strike platoon. Uh, at the time it was, uh, which was, was based on a carrier instead of um, uh, with the Marines. Um, and so we all got free fall called. We all, I was a bunch of high-speed guys. I mean, it, it was a stacked platoon of, you know, everybody had two, three, four deployments. Um, and uh, we were on the John F. Kennedy deployed on that. And you probably don't remember this, but the Saratoga was the, this carrier we were leaving and they were off station off of uh, Inserlik, I believe. No. Yeah. They were off of Turkey and they were doing some kind of exercise. And this is when someone on the Saratoga, sh- like fire control guys shot a missile and hit a Turkish ship, you know, and killed some dudes. And so when we get there to do turnover, we hung this big sign off the side of, of, of the Kennedy saying, you know, don't shoot us kind of thing. <laughs> made out of sheets and um, uh, we just had a blast doing that. We ended up doing some fun stuff in Africa and just tooling around, but uh, living on a carrier was, was, was pretty good life actually considered compared to living on a, on a ship that, you know, a Marg. Yeah. Amphibious ship. Uh, Dave, do you want to give a shout out to uh, Sap Gear? Absolutely. Uh, once again, our sponsors tonight are Sap Gear. You guys know that we like a lot of our uh, their stuff. Uh, what we're uh, showing tonight is their Mission Darkness Window Faraday bag. Now, I've tested like I, I don't know if I w- will again, but I've tested like these phone like. So, what a Faraday bag is for those of you who don't know is it is a bag that will shut off. All of the communications from your phone, your GPS, all cell contact. Because even when, especially with like iPhones, even when you turn it off, people can still access it. Now, you might say, hey, I'm not far left and I'm not far right. And I don't go to these rallies that I don't want people knowing I'm at. Uh, I'm not a KGB or, or agent. I, right. I'm not KGB or whatever. But the thing is, is it... These are great for when you're going through the airport. They're great for, like, Jack and I are going... Traveling overseas. Yeah, Jack and I are going to DEF CON. We will be carrying our phones in these. They are great from keeping people from accessing your Bluetooth, your uh, your wireless, your cell, everything like that. They're great when you travel and you don't actually need your phone. Uh, it keeps you from being vulnerable from all the different things, you know, SIM jacking, blue jacking, all the different things that people can do. Um and uh, and also every app that you have is tracking you at every single moment. Like this will shuts stop that. all of that down. Yeah, it shuts all that down. Um, so even if you're not involved in nefarious activities, like it's a good piece of security to have. Check it out. It's fifty three dollars. It's um, sapgear.com. Yeah, uh, it's military grade. Yeah, sapgear. S a p g e a r 
sapgear.com. And on checkout, use the promo code TEAM to get 15% off. So it's sapgear.com, and then the promo code is TEAM to get 15% off. Yeah, and you can keep your, your GPS units in here, electronic toll collection, transponders, key fobs, all the things that people, I mean, at our last place, like I used a Flipper Zero uh, to to basically mimic our our electronic key code right. and gain access that way. Like er- everything that you have, this transmitting sig- signal can be read. So these are like good options to have when you don't want that signal read. So anyway, check so- out SAP Gear. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Drew, uh, kick it back over to you. Like somewhere around this time frame, there was, uh, well, we already mentioned Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen and Michael Bean, but there was another Navy SEAL movie coming out with Demi Moore called G.I. Jane, and uh, you said that you had a G.I. Jane story to lay on us. Oh, you're muted. How about that? There okay. you go. I got you. Yeah. Getting used to, this, used to this board here. Um, well, first, maybe maybe I should tell you my Navy SEAL story first. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Because that was, you know, let's be chronologically accurate. <laughs> so I'm a new guy. I'm a corpsman. A uh, lot to learn and paid for it dearly. A lot of the things I did wrong uh, during STT. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to say hazing, but that was rites of passage, maybe, you know. That, Physical that, correction. Know. Yes, exactly. Um, so I was cocky, to say the least. Um, I had a Jeep, CJ7, you know, lifted and everything. And I thought, oh, I'd be cool to like get a personalized license plate, you know, real, real smart move. as a <laughs> E5. And, um, that was E4, I think. Um, so I got this plate that said seal dock. Right. <laughs> um, and I go driving into, into work one day and didn't last long. I, I, guys, I guys came to me and were like, Hey, Mullins, we, uh, let's have a talk. Right. So, about an hour and a half after being in the dip tank, riggers taped up, breathing through a snorkel um, <laughs> kind of thing. Got the message. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that or not, but yeah, you know, you can dip your rig in a dip tank and see if it's, see if it's leaking air. <laughs> it also works. You can put a guy under there and you just rigor tape a snorkel to his mouth so he can breathe. Um, yeah. So I, I got rid of that, but um, so it's, but this would be in, I'm going back a little bit. This would be 89. This was, the, I was, I was in this bar watching the world series as the A's and the Yankees, I think. And I'm sitting at the bar, just paying attention to the game. And I look down at the end and I'm like, fuck, oh, I know that guy from someplace. Right. And it turns out it was, uh, 
trying to rack my brain as who he was at the time, but it was Michael Bean. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know him or not. Yeah, yeah. he was. He's played a seal in like eight different movies. He was yeah. Corporal Hicks and yeah. Ilias. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on, the exactly. guy's a legend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Michael Bean's down there, and uh, I don't know, we were only like two stools away, and we're talking about the game and whatnot, and he says, hey, so what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm in the Navy. And he goes, oh, really, what do you do? And I go, yeah, I'm, at, I'm in the teams. He's like, oh, oh really? And uh, I said, yeah. He said, well, what are you doing? I, I said, I'm a corpsman. And he goes, really? I, I'm, and he introduced himself. And he said, uh, you know, we're talking more. And I just finished, like, the short course 18 Delta at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So... I knew how to stick things and, you know, the, the go, the, the go lab portion. Yeah. Of it. Because back then we didn't have the pipeline. So it was yeah. like the you know, trauma. Medicine. It was the trauma medicine. Yeah. The it was the trauma medicine. Was, yeah. 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 So, you know, you're carrying around this awesome, you know, med bag and just hoping people have car crashes in front of you. So you can <laughs> right, do right. So you can crank um, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Interosseous. Oh, you're getting two interosseous. Do, do a cut down. Yeah. Two large bore IDs. <laughs> yeah. Nasal pharyngeal. Yeah. Whatever. Um, yeah. So he says, um, you know, after we talked for a while, he says, Hey, would you mind like, like meeting us over at our hotel in the coming days? I want you to look at this script we're, we're doing. We're doing a film, a movie, and it's just, they had lost their director or changed their writers or something like that. So it was I said, sure, you know, to do a little, you know, real reality kind of check on, cause uh, what's his name? Rick Rosovich was playing, played the corpsman. Um, remember Rick with from Top Gun, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was Iceman's. Reality. Yeah. He's Iceman's. Yeah. Yeah. So I go there and I'm reading the script and I'm like, it was just cheesy. Like, this is when the chief gets shot or somebody gets shot and they, you know, they do some bullshit stuff and then they close his eyes. He's gone. And all that kind of stuff. Like, well, that's not exactly how we do it. Right. We do this, this, and this, and I kind of demonstrated, you know, full sweep and airway and all that kind of stuff and made some, they made some script changes and, and it, you know, that kind of comes out later on in the, in the film to a degree. I mean, some of it got cut, but, but uh, prior to that, back to the bar um, in comes, Charlie Sheen. That's right. I forgot this part. In comes Charlie Sheen with his freaking entourage of people. And uh, they're, um, you know, women and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, hey, what's up? You know, you know, t- typical. Like, yeah, who are you? I don't care. Right. You know. Um, and it was, I think, because I didn't like really care. I mean, I knew who he was. But, um, you know, we kind of hit it off. And, and one thing led to another. Then I went the next a couple of days went over to their thing and rewrote, helped me rewrite some of the scenes in the script. And uh, so that's, that's, that's my contribution to Navy SEALs. I didn't, you know, I, uh, when there's a gun running gun battle and a couple of guys get killed, you know, Rick at least tries to do the right thing, right? He uses the right verbiage and all that kind of stuff. So, so there's that. And um, I never told anybody about that because I was already in kind of on the, on the fence anyways with, the seal doc vanity. My point. own, yeah, yeah. yeah I was getting yeah. enough trouble, you know, <laughs> you know bringing right. belts of sixty ammo home on accident, and then, right. you know, like roommates like, "What the fuck is this?" And you know, um, sorry for the language. Um, yeah, so it's an adult show, so don't hold back. Okay, I just gotta wet my lips. What What are you drinking tonight, there, Drew? Well, I didn't plan on drinking Sazerac, but okay. I was going to do one of those other ones up back there. Looks good. I might. Oh, you you have a nice collection back there. Yeah. yeah. That's just, 
that's a tip of the iceberg, bro. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is, this is my wife's office. Okay. I had to like throw shit in props in here. Like to, so you wouldn't see all the world bank development. Paraphernalia <laughs> going on here. Um, all the new world order stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Just throw, I mean, throw up some pinups. Corruption. Right. Yeah. Actually, to be honest with you, she's, she's a rock star at the world bank. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that because now she'll, someone will, whatever. Kill you. But uh, she's an expert in fraud and corruption, <laughs> anti-money laundering, and lives an exciting life. I bet. Um, yeah, so back to, um, that actually happened before second deployment, I think. Um, and then coming back from the second deployment, G.I. Jane, mm-hmm. that movie came out. I think it was early 90s. Yeah. Right? Um, and we knew that they were shooting some scenes in Virginia Beach couple of them and so every year the seal community naval special warfare including you know swick and everybody who supports them they do a reunion uh on both coasts different times but hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's at, it's, and it's like starts on the meeting house on uh, Friday. You know, it's a chief's club. That's where everybody meets and, you know, there's a whole lot of, Good times there drinking. And then Saturday is, um, you know, various events like um, uh, there's a demonstration, there's a run, there's a swim, you know, where kids and everybody can run in that <clears throat> different classes and then categories. Saturday night is a, oh, and we do a CapEx kind of demonstration, you know, where I did a bunch of those where fast rope in and snipers come out of the water and, you know, things like that uh, for the, for the families. And, um, then in the evening on Saturday is the the beach party. So it's at the officer's beach, I think. I don't know if it still is anymore. I think it's in Fort Story now, so it uh, might be different. But, um, and we'd heard rumors that that she was going to come. What's her name? Demi. Demi. Demi Moore. Demi. Demi. Demi Moore. Oh, Demi. It's like Kamala. I can't say it right. You know, right. I Kamala, can't. Yeah. Whatever. Um, Demi Moore was coming. And so, sure enough, you know, at uh, midnight or 1130 or whatever, we're all kind of like hammered anyways. She ends up showing up and she's got like four older frogmen, retired dudes who are escorting her around, kind of their bodyguard escort kind of thing. So she can navigate the, you know, the environment. Sure. And it, let's just say it wasn't real popular, right? I mean, people weren't real excited yeah, yeah. to see her. And, uh, you know, so... I remember looking at I was with some guys and I said, I'm going to go get her a beer. So I went over and got a beer, you know, red solo cup, brought it over to her. I said, Hey, to me, and I was smoking a cigar or something. <laughs> if you're going to be a, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, you're going to be a seal here, ha, 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 have a beer, you know, drink a beer with me. And she's like, Oh, I don't, I don't drink. And, uh, Oh, really? So I just had it and I pointed it at her and I just turned it upside down and dumped it on her feet. 
and just dropped the solo cup and walked away, right? Now, I mean, I don't think I meant to drop it on her feet. I meant to just pour it out there, but I was kind of wobbly. Um, and uh, walked back to my guys and, uh, you know, that was it. Um, and then later on, you know, I kind of came back years later, a couple of years ago, where other guys were talking about that. And they said, you know, hey, I heard about that. I didn't know if it was true. And I said, yeah, it was true. Um, but I, you know, nothing happened. I didn't get in trouble or anything, but I just feel like that's, you know, if you're going to be, if you want to be a team guy or team gal or whatever right. it is, you, you gotta, you gotta play the part, man. Right. You know, you did, know, so you know that like her not drinking was, was more, yeah. was more unbelievable. It, it was more unbelievable than her being a woman frog. Her, <laughs> her being a non-drinking frog, man. Yeah. yeah it's, it, I wish I could remember more. There was more to it, but, uh, uh, I think I might've even been, I'm probably being kinder now and retelling the story. And kind of, yeah. Oh, About the kind of yourself, you mean, or to her? Oh, to her. Yeah. 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 Cause there was more dialogue, but, um, you know, some sort of language going back and forth. Well, I mean, it was respectful, but you know, still, you know what it was. What, what did you think of the feature film, Drew? You know, I don't remember if I watched the whole thing or not. Um, Cause it was so, I mean, at least Sheen and Beans, Navy SEAL, there was, there was things that, that were accurate. Right. Okay? Right. Right. The thing about right. that movie that's, it's generally accurate is um, we, we pride ourselves on the East coast. Let's just put it this way. The West coast seals. Right. And there's a lot of, they're all great. Everybody's the same, but they like to surf. You talk about hair gel. You know, that's them. Uh, Crokies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, you know, they're, they like to do all that kind of st- stuff. And they even put out a calendar. This was hilarious. Back in the like early 90s, this calendar, and it had all these beefcake shots of these guys, right? And we just never let them live, live it down, right? Because it was like a fundraiser deal. And a bunch of guys I went through Buds with were in it. And, and of course, we, we made fun of like, hey, if you're on the East Coast, our calendar would be picture of a guy jumping out of a second story bedroom window because the, you know, the boyfriend came home or, you know, up against the wall, getting arrested by the cops or pulled over for a DUI or something like that. That's, that would be like more of the East Coast stuff. And um, yeah, so that, um, I forgot what I was going to say about that. You know, your question. That, that, that the Navy SEALs. About the Navy was, SEALs movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. About the right, right. Seal, yeah, SEAL team are the Navy SEAL movie. So, you know, they, they do a fairly, because that was written by Chuck Farrar, I think, you know, so who, yeah. who used to be in the teams. You know, oh, was I, I he? I didn't know that. Yeah. Because yeah, he also it, did, um, he also did uh, Dark Manor. No. Anyway. He, he wrote a bunch of yeah, books. Yeah. yeah. He did. He did. Yeah. And, and it's it's not his fault that the movie turned out the way it did. Cause you know, it's always budget. It's always director. It's always, you know, a bunch of other people can, can influence things, but there were some things that were, you know, I don't think uh, and a little, little, you know, clip Clavin worthless bit of information. Um, the scene where Charlie jumps out of the back of the CJ seven going across the bridge to Portsmouth mm-hmm. into the water. If you, if you watch that again, you can see it. The stunt man kind of didn't, enter the water the right way and end up getting hurt pretty good. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Or his back or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, and then the golf course stuff is classic and all that. 
Um, but um, G.I. Jane just seemed to be just way too contrived. I mean, they couldn't even simulate Bud's right. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was it was terrible. Crazy Vigo Mortensen in that movie. Yeah. Confronting yeah. Dummy in the showers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it was, you know, that, that, that's not. So you've seen the movie, Jack. I have seen the feature film. Yes. Oh. Oh. There's a whole Sears school scene in there. Yeah, but I digress. I digress. <laughs> let's right. get back. To, no one wants to hear this stuff. Let's man. get back to Drew. Uh, Drew, what was what was uh, deployment number three like? Um, it, are we getting towards a point where the Balkans are starting to come up on your radar? Yeah. So um, let's see. Second platoon, the Balkans. Yeah. So it was early '90s. So that was a full scale war going on. We actually did the G and C. Um, the, uh, the the carrier did sorties into the war zone at the time, right? Into the Balkans while they were still fighting. Um, and we did, you know, a couple of little vanilla kind of recon things, but they were just, they were nothing to speak of thinking. we, But mostly we were there for trap, you know, like if, uh, if a plane went down, we were supposedly going to be the, the, the crew to go help get the pilot. <clears throat> And uh, there was a pilot shot down, but the Marines did that that mission from us. Uh, oh, what's it called there? Right, the Air Force Base. Uh, was that? Uh, was that? Was that when Scott O'Grady got shot down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott O'Grady. Yep. And um, so we didn't get to do that, but but that was like, as uh, your your partner can attest to, that was a suitcase full of cash kind of exchange. It, you know, it, the movies say, you know, do have one version, but the. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, allegedly, I didn't know that. yeah, there's more of a, more of a greed kind of thing. But, um, you know, prior to that actually taking place, there was some, you know, real world stuff going on. People mo- looking for them and everything. <clears throat> so that second deployment on the carrier, we didn't, uh, we did a lot of that, but so Balkans was on my radar. Uh, Yugoslavia came back then uh, that was still teammate um I screened for damn neck at the time and uh got selected but I was also let's see how let's make sure we get this right um yeah so I didn't know what I was going to get and the orders came out to go to gray green which would have been uh the boats but I was on deployment. Mm. So I was on the carrier and they have a policy at the command not to take guys off mid deployment to come, mm. you know, so that, you know, just luck of the draw at that point. Um, so I got back, uh, rescreened and, uh, got a positive screening. But at the time I was at E6 Corman, they had just kind of retooled the whole pipeline for becoming a chief you know, had to have 18 Delta qualification or, or Navy IDC school, independent duty corpsman school. Um, <clears throat> so I went out to, actually, I went out to DLI first. That's right. And I came back and screened, but um, so I went out to DLI, I learned French ish. How um, amazing is DLI when you're an enlisted spec ops guy? Dude, <laughs> I tried every way to extend out there. I could, right. You know, um, I was like, oh, can I take intermediate French or no, <laughs> can I take advanced or whatever? Can I break my foot or whatever? Um, 
but I learned to golf out there and it's just, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's Monterey and Carmel are just Pacific Grove are just awesome. Um, yeah. That came back. And that's when I, I guess that's when Haiti happened. 94. Yeah. Right. 94. Um, went to seal team five or I'm sorry, seal team two. So I went from teammate and in the, in the process, in the meantime, teammate had, they had a proper compound built, you know, we, we'd be, you know, we were normal by then, you know, by the, by the end of our deployments, um, my deployments there had proper compound established in a reputation. It was, it was all good. Um, checked into team two and that was like, I'm really in the teams now, you know, it was awesome. Um, the, uh, it just, Rudy Bosch was the command master chief, you know, and it was like, you know, he'd walk around and be like, uh, check the watch bill, you know, cause if your hair wasn't cut right, you're, you're on weekend duty and shit like that. I mean, it didn't matter where you came from, even in, even a, a regular team guy. I mean, they were gentle, gentler in welcoming you than, than a brand new guy, you know, with, that was always fun at quarters to see a new guy check in and dress blues. And it's like the command master chief and the XO would be like, Hey, so-and-so walk up here and introduce yourself. And they say, I'm seeing it. And they shut up, you know, that kind of thing. And then they'd walk away and it was just game. <laughs> welcoming, welcoming them to the command. But uh, yeah, team two was to this day. I, I it's, it was the lore and uh, you know, one of the original two teams, uh, they have a, great Vietnam history. And I was just, just stellar performers. It was like the triple A club for, for damn neck, basically, you know, so, you know, they were recruited out of there heavily and, and they had like a pipeline going. So guys would rotate from, from uh, damn neck, you know, to training and platoons and then pass the knowledge on. Um, but my first platoon there, um, let's see. In between that platoon and after DLI, I did a JCO mission in the Balkans. I don't know if you know what that is, Jack. Wait on us. Joint Commission Observer. So they had just declared the ceasefire, okay, in, in uh, Yugoslavia, Serb, Serbska, and all that. So NATO, or S4, was co- going into you know, carve it up. And they had that British sector, Italian sector. French oh yeah. Sector. I, I think Giaconia did one of these. Yeah. So it was true. It was really an SF 18 mission. Right. But they didn't have enough guys. So they, they would, you know, let us play. So one or two of us per house would, would pair up and go live in a, in a house in uh, the different sectors, Banja Luka, um, everywhere, Tuzla, you know, all the, all the different places. And the SF guys did their SF, you know, IW stuff. Um, and what was cool about it, while well, everybody else in the whole AO was um, in full battle rattle and Kevlar and helmets and body armor and all that, we were driving around thin skin vehicles with Terps, just wearing camis with no ID on them um, and maybe a pistol. And we'd go anywhere we want. We'd blew past every checkpoint in, in that country, just did whatever we wanted to do. And then they did their collection and stuff. And it was, it was basically um, the mission was, you know, collect information that might be Intel and establish relationships, you know, kind of 
figure out stuff. And then, you know, a precursor to um, some stuff that our cousins were already doing. We, you know, kind of in, in the open helped them out with that, but it was a great time. 10th group again. Uh, that was my first exposure to those guys. I wish I could remember their names, but we were in the Sarajevo house, which was actually on the Serbska side. So I don't know how familiar you are with Ser- with that conflict or not, but what was telling, what was really amazing about Sarajevo <clears throat> when I went there is uh, that it was they still had snipers and they still had the occasional stuff going on, but you could really tell who had the most arms by the condition of what side of town you were in because it was just destroyed. And being on the Serbian side, you know, they did what the, what the Serbs did is they displaced a lot of people. They just basically came and said, Hey, we're taking your house. You can go live in Croatia, beat it, you know, that kind of thing. And some family would take it over. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was a, a really interesting time you know, run, just driving around with those guys and working mm-hmm. with them. And at the same time, we, um, you know, got to move around doing other things. Um, so that was a, that was a fun time. The JCO mission. Sometimes I forget about that. Uh, but that really kind of opened me up, opened my eyes to kind of what was really going on, the ethnic cleansing and then, right. you know, the post Tito world and, um, you know, the influence of this, you know, the Soviet Union, once the Soviet Union had fallen, just how, how that affected different uh, parts of the world. So um, let's see. So back to team two, did a deployment there. Uh, went, we actually left early for that. This is when Moboto Seise Seiko. Okay. He was the leader of what used to be called Zaire. Uh, there was a civil war going on. And, um, the embassy in uh, Sierra Leone, no, in um, capital of uh, Zaire. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. Why can't I think of that? Having a Sazerac moment right now. Um, anyway, we had to go early because there was that going on. It was unstable. They were thinking about doing a Neo. And then also Sierra Leone was, was a shit show too. So, um, I mean, that's just like everybody who's been an SF guy or, or, team guy in the, in the nineties has been to either Sierra Leone or Liberia. Right. You know, um, because they kept collapsing. Um, so we went early, we got on the USS Kearsarge, my squad with, uh, six, eight other, uh, seven other guys in the, in the LT. So uh, the way they broke up a SEAL platoon was, is 16 guys. You have an AOI, an OIC who's usually a tenant, uh, O three. And then an AOIC, is going to be an O2 or, you know, usually, or a hard charge in O1. And then you have a chief and a leading petty officer. So I was leading petty officer, which is E6, LPO. So I pair up with the lieutenant, my squad, Alpha squad, and then Bravo squad. It was, you know, they paired up with the chief, the chief and, and the uh, AOSC. So my squad leaves two weeks early. We get on the Kearsarge and steam full speed over to um, West Africa to Zaire. And uh, we wait for, you know, what we're going to do. We did a Intel mission, which is kind of training, but no one knew where the guy was, right? He had left the country because he was, you know, he 
was wanted by the Hague and everybody else. But but things were going south. The Marines were planning a non-combatant evacuation operation across the river in Brazzaville um, in Cote d'Ivoire. And um, the um, we were wondering what we were going to do. So remember Divots or Divots, the uh, SATCOM thing where you could go take photos and then blast them back over. It was like an, it was like a very early form of yeah yeah yeah. So we just had to get off the ship. So we we just convinced we convinced the um, ops officer, hey, look, you know, let's go do this thing in in um, in uh, Point Noir. It's just like this little town right on the Atlantic. Uh, to this airfield and we go there and uh, land, we, you know, we get some, some Marine helos bring us to this place and drop us off. <clears throat> We're taking pictures, all these old MIGs, like MIG 15s, MIG 17s are, you know, just rotting away on this airfield. Um, and um, so we were bored. Bored frogman's a dangerous thing. Um, <laughs> so we, my Leatherman, I broke into one of those cockpits and took a bunch of gyroscopes and, instruments out of there, um, the souvenirs. But while we're sitting there, you know, okay, we're going to do our training. We take some pictures or Intel specialist guy on the team has got his big camera out and this 707, I think, or 760, I don't know what it was. Some big plane lands on the other side of the air, airfield. And he's looking through his, his uh, camera and he sees they open the door and it's like all this gold stuff's inside there, like gold, handles and you know really ornate well it just turns out that that was the president of the country the dictator Mobotos Hisekos plane and we accidentally found where he was because he you know he's leaving the country and they were getting fuel or whatever we sent it back and and so it's happenstance but um that was the extent of what we did there the marines actually did more but but in the meantime stuff started going sideways and and I always get them mixed up. I apologize. Um, Liberia or Sierra Leone. So we had to zoom up there and evacuate the embassy and uh, brought a bunch of people off to the Neo there. Um, but the fun part, the interesting part of this whole thing is, right? So the MAGTAF, the MU commander is a Marine. He's 06. And the Navy guy who's running the ship is, uh, you know, obviously an 06 too, um, as well. Um so the, in the Navy, if you're at sea for more than 30 days, you get a beer ration, right? And we were at sea for 65 days. Well, only people to get off the ship by the time we did get off were, or before that was our squad and the Marines that actually went to the embassy. Um, and we crossed the, the, if you cross the equator in the Navy, you're what's known as a shellback. Have you heard of that ceremony? That, uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we crossed the equator at the prime meridian. So we crossed at zero, 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 which makes you the most unique shellback in the world, right? Um, so you have a special Neptune. You have a special <laughs> ceremony. Um, and uh, that's, a, you know, another fun time. Um, but the sh- for whatever reason, they didn't want to give us a beer ration. So now we're like, hey, we're owed two and a half. What the, what the, what the F, you know? Uh, we do all our work. Ship cruises north. 
the first place we're going to pull into port is the Canary Islands. So it's like the way they do it in the, in the Navy, right? You, they, they set, I don't know if you guys have ever been on a ship, but they set what's called sea and anchor detail. So that's, you know, you have the crew is divided up into two or three ships and sea and anchor. Those are the guys who man the ship and, and t- take care of when it comes into port, getting it all tied up. And then they do, um, you know, they have to have certain manning on the ship and, and then embarked company can, they get Liberty call. And I thought, ah, you know, my, my squad was like, yeah, we're going to go out. I'm like, I'm going to stick around me and a couple of guys are just going to stick around. We'll go, we'll go on the next Liberty. So the Canaries are, are just like sick. You know, that's where everybody goes. You know, that's where all the reality kind of shows are filmed from England, you know, the, all that stuff. Um, real destination place. And um, so I thought I'm going to go down to the sick bay and work with the junior corpsman down there. Cause I had already finished independent duty corpsman school, which was a year long, basically your PA, so, so to speak. Um, yeah. It's a course that people don't know about that much, but it's they don't like it's, yeah. it's, um, it's like the 18 Delta course only it's geared more for, like civilized medicine and not so much like what you might encounter in a village, but it's very comprehensive. Yeah. It, to that point, it's um, so I'd, I'd done the, at the time we didn't know in the teams, we didn't know, you know, it's all, it's all fixed. Now you go to JFK, you know, you go to the schoolhouse, you know, you get the same training, but we went, they sent us the 91 Bravo right mm-hmm. early. Cause they didn't know it. And it was like basically going to Corman a school all over. Right. So <clears throat> I'm in San Antonio for that as a young guy with three other, two other frogmen, junior guys. In fact, I don't even know if I had my trident at that time or not yet. Um, maybe I did. Anyway, San Antonio is the wrong place to send yeah. you, young seals who, you know, who already know this stuff. Right. So, it's a medical <laughs> campus, right? Oh my gosh. Right. But it's, but it's also just the most target rich environment in the world because it's that's like, what um, I meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everything from med school to right. every MOS that teaches any kind of medicine in the air force and then in the army is there. Right. And while we were there, it's, I remember, um, you know, the first couple formations, you know, have that, you know, how they have that, um, formation for a formation in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, you've, like you wake up and you're there and you're like, what's, what's going on? And they're like, uh, they're just going to tell us when the next formation is and we'll go to child. I'm like, what the fuck do we get up for? If we, if we, you know, just tell us what time to be ready to go. Right. That kind of thing. And then one day it's like, we're, we look outside and it's raining. So we put on our Gore-Tex jackets, go outside and it's raining. And everybody else is like, doesn't have anything on. I'm like, why don't you have rain gear on? And they're like, cause no one told us to put our ponchos on. And I'm like, what do you mean? No one told you to put your poncho on. It's raining. You know, it's like, did people have to tell you that? You know, it's you know, a lot of junior guys. So it, it was just kind of like our, our introduction to it. So essentially it was like at that point, um, we figured out, okay, this is how we get around this. We went to the first sergeant of our company, I guess it is. Um, Dave? Um, yeah. 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 Probably. Training company. Yeah. Because it, right? it was basically, you were going, you were already a corpsman. Yeah. So you were going to basically the AIT or a school of the army for their medics. And you're like, what, what is going on here? Right. Like you're not teaching me anything. Right. 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 Um, So they had this pool, this outdoor pool there 
And it, it, it was at the winter time, so it wasn't open. So we convinced that first sergeant, hey, we have to maintain our, our swim our swim calls. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, okay. Yeah, I say, hey, so well, we'll just uh, what we're gonna do is, you know, every morning or we're gonna go swim in the pool, and then we'll just meet the company at the chow hall, mm-hmm. right? Um, which meant we would just could stay out later and then just you know take a shower and go to the chow hall, like. Mm-hmm you know, normal civilized hour. We actually tried, we actually tried to do it actually for real, but it was so damn cold. Like he had to wear wet. So we were like, yeah, now we're just going to just milk this thing. And uh, um, I, the, the other thing I remember that, that I can speak about openly um, is the one thing about the army back then is there's a lot of smokers. Right. Mm-hmm. And um so whenever we take a break, you know, all these guys would rush outside and start smoking. And we're like, bored. You know, what are we going to do? Push-ups? You know, whatever. So one weekend, we're like, oh, let's, let's go build some pull-up bars outside the place, right? So we went to Home Depot and bought four-by-fours and some cement and some, PV, or some uh, pipe dug holes and put two different height pull-up, pull-up bars right outside and it was like, remember that scene in Planet of the Apes when, um, when the monkeys see the the apes see the uh, monolith? Oh, that's uh, two thousand and one. Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, two thousand one, where they're like looking at it, like what the you know they're gonna touch it. <laughs> and it was like Monday, and people were like looking at these pull-up bars, like they where did those come from. And so we, you know, on breaks we'd go out and do pull-ups. You know, we're young, young guys, still like in the best shape of our lives, just out of buds and everything. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, that was a fun time. Ended up getting out of there. And then anyway, getting back to, um, back to the story. Um, I'm in the Canaries and I'm an IDC and I'm in these quad zeros, you know, that's just, that's just a corpsman in the Navy who doesn't have, um, any particular specialty like radio, like radiology tech or or respiratory therapist or whatever. And I swear to God, we set C and anchor. We were at, uh, the, the, the brow, the gangway went down at like two o'clock between two and three by six o'clock shore patrol was bringing drunk Marines and sailors back. <laughs> okay. Cause we'd been at sea for 65 days. Right. right. With, and people just were like, I'm getting hammered. Right. So people were coming back and they were passing out. So we just were like, yeah, bring them to sick bay. And I was teaching, teaching these young guys. Okay. What's the unconscious protocol? Gotta know what that is. Right. Cause you don't know what's wrong with this guy. Right? he could be a diabetic. He could, you know, he could be on drugs, whatever. <clears throat> so I'm going to teach you the uncon- unconscious protocol, which basically was, I'm going to teach the patient not to do that again. Right. right? So, um, two large bore IVs, right. nasal, pharyngeal, uh, urethra, uh, catheter, you know, urethra catheter. Well, it like, starts with that sternal rub, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Sternal rub. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. You do that, you know, assess uh, uh, whatnot. And, you know, of course, they're going to throw up or whatever. <laughs> right. But, uh, so the captain, the surgeon comes in, this 06 Naval Medical, or Navy officer's doctor comes in. He's like, hey, uh, what are you doing? I go, hey, we're just doing some training, sir. What do you mean training? Yeah, well, you know, these guys are coming back and they're unconscious and, you know, they're drunk and whatever. I'm teaching the young guys how to do IVs and 
you know, how to do catheters and nasal pharynx airways and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, ah, dude, you can't do that. You can't, you can't, you can't do invasive, you know, this is what you do in the teams, right? You do it to, to each other, right? right? All the time. But, uh, I mean, I didn't get in trouble or anything, but he was like, yeah, good, good initiative, bad, maybe not quite the best. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that, that story goes to where like, okay, it's like, you had to be back depending on your rank at a certain time on the ship. You know, if you're a chief, the chiefs went out, those E7s, they went out and rented hotel rooms. So, you know, they had, they had a base of operation out there. They did it right. Chiefs of Mass always did it right. Mm-hmm. Everybody else had to be like, if you're E6, you had to be back by two or something like that. And the next day, of course, you have to submit a, a muster, muster report for your guys. So, you know, I wake up and like four of the racks, four or five of the racks were empty. Like my guys didn't come back. And I'm like, fuck, you know, but I ran into some chiefs and at breakfast and they're like, Hey man, we ran into your guys. You know, they're <laughs> awesome. We party with them all night. You know, they're blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. You know, so I knew they were alive, but I, I had this dilemma. Right? <laughs> Do I fill out the, the muster report right. that, you know, the guys are here present or not. Right. Right. <sighs> so I thought, yeah all present and accounted for, handed it in, you know, cause they, you know, otherwise balloons start going up and everything. And I, and this guy, this friend of mine, Paul, who ended up going to the command and doing like 15 years there. Paul, let's go dude. We're going to find those guys. And, uh, went out in town and, um, found them. You know, they were still drinking and everything. And they could see me coming from, from away down the street. And they're like, Oh, Andy's pissed. Um, and I'm um, like, you motherfuckers, man. I had to falsify a muscle report. And you, you're, you're lucky you're alive because right. you wouldn't be if, right. if I, you know. And I said, here's the deal. You're my bitches for the rest of the deployment, right? <laughs> That's how it's going to work. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And, uh, you know, it was all good um, at, after that. And they, and they were. I mean, but, they, these guys, you know, they, they paid it, the man. I mean, to, to give us some context, it puts you in a predicament because, yep. you know, you don't, you don't want to rat your dudes out for just being out drinking all night. But if one, if one of them got seriously hurt or had gone missing and you say, yeah, he's present and accounted for. And then all of a sudden he ends up like dead in some alley. Oh, you know, then it comes back on you. So let's, uh, Drew, I want to ask you, uh, you're making your way through the seal teams here. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. You kind of, you, you kind of, um, I don't want to say it got screwed over, but I mean, it, it, as far as like where you were at in your career, it was very difficult for you to make that transition over to damn neck without really getting kind of screwed over. So you kind of missed that opportunity. When, when did this uh, thought come into your mind or this realization that like, Hey, there's this entire other endeavor out there in special operations that I could potentially go and assess for. Yeah. I'm glad you, you reeled me in. Um, uh, Jack, it's, that's a good point. Um, 
because I don't want to sound like you know some old guy who's making people jump off your channel right now. <laughs> but uh, when that happened, I had some good uh, good senior guys at the command at the team who who had been over over to to uh, over to Damnick, and they said, "Hey, you know, there's other places you can go." So just to give context, and then I'll move. I'll jump into that. Sure. My second time after this deployment I'm talking about right now, this was my uh, fourth deployment, uh, fifth, actually. Um, when I got back, it was like, hey, I went back to the command and they're like, um, yeah, you're an E6, you're a corpsman. Um, but here's the thing. If you go through green team, we're not going to cut you loose to go to 18 Delta. Because mm -hmm. even though I was an IDC, to get advanced, you know, you had to check other blocks because you're competing against every other corpsman in this, in this right. SEAL team. They said, we're going to need our two years of, uh, of use before we can, you know, and they might put you off cycle for chief. Right. And, and that's kind of like when I'm like, ah, you know, and they were, you know, they were like, you know, it's one thing to, and, and, and you know how it is. They, they like to grow their own uh, enlisted dudes before right. they become chief. Cause then you're a boat crew leader. You know, and if you've not cut your teeth on, you know, a bunch of deployments as, as a, a, a team guy, a team member, you know, a unit or a squadron member or troop, troop member, then, you know, you're kind of like not rep, you don't have the corporate knowledge to be a troop chief. So uh, just out of curiosity, I'm, I don't mean to derail you, but I'm curious, how did, uh, damn that deal with corpsmen then at that time because it's really hard to grow your own corpsmen especially since you can't really it's tough to make e7 as a corpsman uh, without idc or whatever like so how did they do that how did they manage that that's a good question you know and a lot of guys didn't care you know some guys are like hey fuck it i i want to be a salter you know so it didn't it didn't matter um, so they wouldn't compete for promotion in order to go damn neck basically well, i think i think you, you definitely <clears throat> got looked at differently by the, because Navy wide back then it was, it was in the Navy chiefs, senior master chiefs, whatnot, who, who picked people and um, for advancement to, to chief. Uh, it still is, but, but now we have our own special operations, special operator MOS. So, but so those guys, some of them would be like, yeah, I'm just going to be a salter. I don't care. And then at some point, someone would say, Hey, you're, you know, you've been in E6 too long. You need to go to punch this ticket and get it. And, and you can, you know, cause we want you to be a chief. We want you to be a leader. Um, but back then it was just kind of, it was, a, it was uh, in between the seam kind of seams of advancement. So it was, you know, you had to kind of make your own decision on that. And yeah, I talked to some guys who told me about this unit back at that time. It was called Torn Victor. Um, that was its, Diagraph name or whatever you call it. Um, and, you know, they go back, the unit goes back to the, uh, what do you call it? Not the, 1980 uh, Operation Eagle Claw. Yeah, Eagle Claw, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and uh, even, you know, some make the case back to the OSS. So um, they told me about that. And, and up until that point, they said, yeah, if you go, because these were guys who were at Damneck and they knew about it because they worked with them. They said you'd be you'd be a good fit up there, blah blah blah. So, I I made chief that year, ninety eight. Uh, went to SOCOM or to Sockier as a J thirty three chief, the uh, CLA's on up there. Um, 
and then found out, and then I applied, I applied before, filled out a package for that, for that uh, SMU and uh, thought I was going to come back to the team and be a platoon chief, whatever. And they, they selected me to go to assessment selection. So um, I went in 99, early 99. So like March went out to, uh, went out to, um, to Nevada mm-hmm. and uh, did the long walk and stuff. And um, uh, had a real good assessment selection, got picked up by the, by that, at that time, there'd only been one other seal who was there before me. There was, there'd been a couple other guys, but they were like liaison guys or, mm-hmm. you know, um, whatnot. So <clears throat> yeah. So 99 went to the, went to the unit and um, did a year worth of what we call um, CQ CQT, you know, um, uh, it's been called a bunch of different acronyms, but it's basically the, you know, a year long tradecraft slash stuff. So you, it, it was a really, I, I must say to, to this day, I love buds. I loved everything about it. <laughs> it was the hardest thing I ever did at the time, but the assessment selection aspect of screening for the, for the unit was the most rewarding thing I've ever done Mm -hmm. because you don't get any feedback on any decision you make, you know, and a lot of people try to G2 it Mm -hmm. and you can tell they're G2 it. Cause I, late years later, I ended up being cadre. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're, you're that wizard of Oz guy behind the screen, (laughs) right? You, You know how it all works. Right. And, um, then you, you, you're able to see, you know, how people try to, game it you know when they're when they are not but yeah it was uh it was uh awesome now yeah. did you say that you were the first uh, second first or second the second seal because i also know around that time that they started taking like rangers and they hadn't in the past it was it, it, it at the time had been sort of a kind of an sf pipeline or whatever pipeline do you know, uh, did you ever get any insight into why this particular SMU decided to like broaden the, the recruiting pool? Um, that's a good question. Uh, as to why they did, I think they realized that, you know, the 10th group mafia was strong in, mm-hmm. uh, in that unit um, for good reason. But, um, but they also realized that they were having a hard time finding the right candidates just in the army. Mm-hmm. Right. So they opened it up to the sister services. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, of course it, it leaps and bounds after desert storm took off. I mean, after, um, uh, nine 11, uh-huh. you know, just you know, a lot of Marines and, and, but Rangers. Yeah. They, you know, and some of the best guys I worked with were former Rangers or Rangers still, you know, at the unit, but not, um, you, you could see the pedigree in the senior NCO guys were, 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 were Rangers. So, um, as yeah, I, I'm going to speculate on that, but I, I, but I believe it was just kind of like Manning issue. Uh-huh. They, they wanted to grow more, uh, more troops in the squadron. Um, they have, you know, they have various levels of, um, capability, you know, you know, from- and it's, it's interesting because we've also heard of another army SMU that, you know, uh, used to recruit, uh, <clears throat> Or, or like uh, RRD, for instance, or RRC, mm-hmm. 
that used to only recruit Rangers and then started, then made it like army wide in the sense of, you know, sometimes the best people can come from places that we don't necessarily expect them to come from. Yeah, I, I think so. It, um, especially when you, you know, you're dealing with frogmen because um, we're pretty nonplussed about a lot of things sometimes. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, um, eh, whatever, you know, that kind of attitude. And that could be misread. You know, like you don't care, and right. Uh, right. I, I wanted uh, I wanted to ask you yeah. about that, Drew. Like, what was it like for you coming from being a frogman to suddenly learning all this different types of tradecraft? I mean, you, it sounds like you had a little bit of exposure to clandestine operations, but moving into that and also moving from SEAL culture to JSOC culture was that sort of uh, difficult or interesting to try to navigate that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I felt like. You know, I was always, see, this is the story of my life. I, I'm always the older guy, the guy who comes in late, the guy who learns things differently, but I've also have a different level of life experience. So, you know, that, that is a plus and a minus a lot of times from a perception ba- point of view, it can be, it can be a negative because people think you just, you know, you, you come across as know it all, but but I was also a criminal at heart, right? I mean, a lot of the things I did before I joined the Navy were survival mode stuff, right? You know, just getting getting by. So <clears throat> when I got to the unit, um, it was still, it wasn't a JSOC uh, unit or a JSOC smooth then. It mm-hmm. became one uh, shortly thereafter mm-hmm. for, for a number of reasons. Um, but definitely had to adapt to a, a strong army culture. But this was a very unique army culture, right? right? Um, had a, a long history of things that the country doesn't even know about mm-hmm. that they did. And they, uh, you know, great men and women. I mean, I'm not talking about just men. There's a, some awesome stellar operator women who, who've gone through that whole pipeline, who've done amazing things. But to your question, I guess um, I did have to adapt to that. And then when you realize that suddenly you were, an asset and everybody wanted your opinion, except for the fact it was an army manned unit. Right. When it came to advancement, like I many times was the de facto troop chief or troop uh, sergeant major uh, for, for whatever reason, but I'm never going to get selected to be the troop sergeant major because it's an 18 series billet. It's an 18 x-ray billet. Oh, right. wow. I didn't okay. Know that. Yeah. Now that might've changed over sure. the years. And I imagine it has, um, but you know, that's kind of one of the things you have to wrestle with, but the good side of the, 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 the upside of it was to go there, you go to, you're actually covered under a different place in the Navy. Right. So when it came to advancement, I was one of one all the time and all my OERs or fit reps were signed by CNO. I mean, I almost, I almost busted them out because it's hilarious to read them, you know, you know, Admiral Mullen, Admiral this, Admiral that, you know, promote this guy, you know, blah, 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 make him an officer, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it was a time I was a chief, then I made senior chief there, E8. Um, so on the uh, inside baseball part, I didn't have any problem for advancement. It just, you know you kind of discount that because it doesn't really matter when you're, when you're at a tier one element, a tier one 
organization, it's about performing. Right. You know, it, it's, it's not like I need to bank rank to, so I can, you know, go teach people how to blouse their freaking pants or something like that. Um, it's, it's, you just want to operate. Right. Okay. And the thing is, is that honestly, like getting, uh, getting promoted is almost like a detriment to that because it has the possibility of taking you out of that operational status. Absolutely. And, and the, the army guys in particular had to deal with that. Right. Because that. of the upper out type of stuff and everything else. Yeah. Now what, what, you know, they, they fixed that for those guys. Cause they would rotate out, punch their ticket as a fifth group, you know, Sergeant major come back, you know, be the S three or, or I mean the whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're, you know, you're cycling that uh, you're, you're taking care of your troops. Uh, well, uh, yeah. So the army guys, you know, they had to deal with that, but, but once you're in, you're in, you know, you, you just come back. And, and interestingly, if I were to name names in the army right now, uh, you, all, all the key leader GOs or a big handful of them are guys that I worked with, right. Mm-hmm. You know, I went through CTQC with, or, or, uh, deployed with, you know, and, uh, there's a reason why those guys are leading, you know, they're two stars and three stars. Right? So mm-hmm. you, uh, you assessed in 99, uh, go through your training pipeline for a year plus, And I I would like to ask you the question that, I I mean, I think so many people went through. I I assume you were probably focused on the Balkans again, even though you were in JSOC. You correct me if if I'm wrong. I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and then how things changed when 9-11 happened. How how that changed the, as far as what you can say about operations and also the culture, the orientation of the unit and how, how that changed after September 11th. You know, first of all, I want to say, Jack, you're awesome. You recognize I've got ADD and OCD at the same time. So I appreciate you keeping <laughs> Been doing me this for a while. It's okay. On track here. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. Great question. And, and, uh, so again, to be fair, to be accurate, um, prior to 9 11, we weren't, we were still an army SMU. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, SAP. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's, I'm not going to say any more than that, sure. um, but the writing was on the wall. Okay. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember the, the, the order, whether the other commands created their own counterpart to what we were doing, you know, I'm talking to the other squadrons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Each, each particular uh, tier one unit created their own oh, kind of like everybody, recce, everybody recce said that they could do kind of. that. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. Everybody said they could do it. And I remember going down to Damneck, me and, and, and the other guy who's, you know, senior to me, they seal. Um, and we're like, Hey, and Mike, you know, the, the, the master chief for that squadron, you know, he, he was my honor man in, in my buds class. Um, and, and we said, look, dude, we can tell you how to do this so you don't make the same mistakes. You know, when it comes to all these other things, you got to do approvals, docs, covers, all that kind of stuff. You know, in typical fashion, like, yeah, we got it. We don't need your help. Yeah. You know, even though they were receptive, it, it, it was what it was. But um, so it was an army unit manned by jointly manned. And um, 
as far as the Balkans go. So I, I get out of our advanced, our, our, our pipeline training. And this is, this is an interesting little side note. So we start out with 22 dudes, 22 people, because they weren't all dudes. Um, and at the end, there was 10. We go to the board. Um, I'd had a really good final exercise, I thought. Um, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, we do real world stuff. I mean, just the best training in the world, the best exercises, you, the most realistic stuff. And I went to the board and um, they cut, they, they murdered five people right there at the board. Yikes. Right? Um, and I would have been number six. Cause I go into the, in the room and they're all like, yeah, they run down the list of stuff. And well, we just don't think, I mean, you did this and that good and blah, blah, blah. And see, right before that, my fact was telling me like two weeks, Hey, just keep doing what you're doing. You're great. You're fine. Everything's gonna be fine. So I'm like, okay, I got one little exercise left. You know, chill, um, go to the board and, uh, <clears throat> they're like, yeah, but we just not sure that you're suitable for the, I'm like, okay. I got up and walked out. And uh, so I would have been number six. But then the uh, command sergeant major comes out and he goes, after a bit, and he said, like, hey, uh, they, they just don't, they think you, you know, they don't understand your, you know, your affect. They, they think you're like. Like you don't give a fuck. Like I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, at one point they said, at some point during the actual course, he's like, hey, man, if you, if you don't like it here, uh, we can just send you back to the SEAL teams. I'm like, dude, send me the fuck back to the SEAL teams. I did that for 14 years. I loved every fucking day I went to work. It didn't matter how hungover I was. I love my job. Okay. <laughs> Go right ahead. If you feel froggy, jump, send me back. I don't care. But you know, you know, it was a little more frank than that, but uh, yeah. So it was like, Oh, threaten me with sending me back to something I like to do. Right. Right. right um, right. but you know, and he said, Hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, anyway, long story short, uh, you know, he, basically had the overriding the vote and you know, I'm glad he did. You know, if I said his name, you probably know who it was. I just don't want to do it. Sure. Um, he ended up being uh Jason, sorry, major, but that's interesting that he kind of saw through that. Like this yeah. is just a super yeah. laid back guy, but he has his shit under control. Yeah. There's this one, there's this one exercise they do all the time when you're out, out West and you're, you know, they bring you into this room, you sit in a chair and then, you know, they got to, you, you, shoe, uh, what do you call it? Horseshoe shaped layout of everybody. And they ask you, Hey, go rank these five priorities, you know, family, God, country unit, whatever. Right. And you do it. And then they, they tear into you about what your priorities were. And it's, there's no right answer, right? Mm -hmm. It's like right. how much do you believe what you're, what you believe, you know? And, uh, that was the same kind of carried over to the end, you know, the, the board, um, the final thing. But, but I, but I knew my work was good. So anyway, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but fortunately for me, he was there, uh, and, and, it, and it all worked out. Um, now that's 99 and we're full bore going, looking for, you know, JSOC blue and green are, and OGA are, are over in the Balkans hunting war persons indicted for war crimes you know, Karadich and Milosevic and all their minions. And so we immediately started deploying over there. And I did like, I think I did four deployments over there from varying degrees of 60 days, 90 days, you know, um, 99, 2000. 
And uh, that was awesome. I mean, that was just like the most fun stuff. You know, you're running around doing tech stuff, doing surveillance. Um, just, I'm, I'm sure your partner can talk more about that if he knows more about that. Well, I mean, we've had a number of people on the show who've been over to the Balkans uh, hunting war criminals at this point. Uh, and yeah, it's fascinating. It sounds like you were living the life, Drew. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was cool. I mean, I wish I could go into like kind of details. I mean, I will, I will say this one, this one day. Um, so some of the guys that I were at my team and team two that were my counterparts went over to damn neck. And one of them was, um, uh, Neil Roberts, you know, Roberts Ridge. Yeah. And Operation Anaconda. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm over there with the unit doing, doing stuff. And, and, uh, um, uh, a bunch of guys from red, red squadron came over, uh, and they had just come back from there and they were the, uh, the unit, the team that was going to like do the hits, you know, go round up dudes. Um, and one of them was, um, Goody, you know, Goody, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I know you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, those guys, you know, were awesome. Um, so I was getting ready time for me to rotate out and, um, we had a bunch of cars and I, we just got this new Audi a eight in. Right. Um, and I was like, oh, I wanted to drive that thing. So I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take the AA out. I'm going to see if I can set the record to whatever that town was in Serbska. And I, and I did zoom, zoom, you know, full, full speed blowing through checkpoints and everything get there in like 55 minutes, which it's normally an hour and 45 minute drive or whatever it was. Right. Um, and I remember driving through town, cruising through town past the Italians or, or the Dutch or whoever they were. And I look over to the right and I see this car, it's BMW, a red BMW sitting in a driveway <clears throat> and there's someone out there barbecuing. And um, I call back, I said, Hey, you know, you know, texting is, uh, you know, what kind of car does Joe drive? Uh, he drives a red. I said, you know, I'm, Oh, okay. Is it, you know, license plate, blah, blah, blah. It turns out I accidentally found this one guy. That was um that we were looking for and um passed it on pid'd them they came we came back i came back and then it turned out that those guys ended up going and getting them and it's kind of one of those oh wow yeah yeah they set up with uh you know they had a set up a place and you know it's, it's a classic story where they wait for it because he washed his car every sunday right <laughs> in his driveway and, and so they just rolled up one day with a van and, and did the, did the thing, you know, punch them, punch them in the mouth, threw them in the van. Black hood over the head. Yeah. I don't even know if there's a black hood. I don't think they even gave him, you know, they didn't even give a shit, you know, <laughs> like uh, just disrupted this family barbecue and took this guy off the street. And I, and I always thought that was pretty satisfying. Yeah. Um, just like, again, luck, total, total luck. Right. But, but we did a lot of really fun, cool things that, that, you know, we, we performed instead of having surrogates do it or whatever. Um, very satisfying. Um, I went out after that, I went out to the bundle course, tandem bundle course out in out West in Tucson and Marana. And while 
That must have been a guess of a time. I mean, it's like a 600 pound bundle, right? Yeah. Yeah. We were jumping. They were doing everything. Motorcycles, cruise boxes, you know, sono tubes, you know, those things full of, you know, like you see, uh, full of kit. You know, they've gotten it. They, they made it, you know, so you're a tandem bundle muster when you get out. But but here's here's a, the cool thing about 9-11, if you want to know. Um, so me and a buddy back up to 90, this is going to be the year 2000. We go down to this course and we got invited by our cousins to say, hey, if you want to go to this course where we got, uh, where you can learn all these boats, different kind of boats and different kinds of diving. And, um, you can come down here and, and, uh, take this course. It was a month long. So we learned, uh, all kinds of different dissimilar vessel driving and, and whatnot. And, and then you mix trade crafting with that. So you're using, you know, you're learning how to do that. And, and then we did mix gas diving, get our little certificate, you know, I mean, our little, uh, diver card. So we, you know, we could do any kind of mixed gas diving and whatnot. And so I made friends with these guys that were down there and later on there, they invite me up to this barbecue up in, up in uh, Arlington and we're sitting outside, you know, you know, if I said their names, I mean, I know, you know, them. Um, but one thing led to another and Mick, who was there at the time. Mulroy. Yeah. Mick Mulroy, uh, <laughs> as well as Thomas was the last name. Anyway. Um, they're like, hey, we're getting ready to go do this thing, this thing called the Nile, right, in Iraq. Um, and we're going, we're taking these tenth group guys and pilot team dudes, and um, we got, we got extra slots. You know, what do you think? You want to come? You want to do it with us? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, sounds good. You know, what's his name? Who's the famous uh, CIA guy who wrote the books? Uh, uh, before that, about that, um, they made Serpico, not Serpico. Anyway, um, you're talking about you like, know, like, like Bob Bear, Bob Bear, yeah, okay. Bob Bear. Okay, so, so Bob Bear was like one of the legacy guys who rotated in and did that stuff prior yeah, to, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. okay. Um, <clears throat> but it kind of, I, I don't know the actual, you know, timeline of, of whatnot, but but by this time, it was after 9 11, it was game on. Um, you know, things were going to happen. So, you know, I kind of skipped past 9 11 because I don't need to talk about that. Everybody knows about that. Sure. Um, the, um, um, just realized I need to plug in power here. If you can, we take a real yep. short break? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, yeah. everybody. Uh, please check out our Patreon. It's listed in the link or underneath the uh, thing. Um, we just moved into a new studio. We still drink a lot, and we could really use your money to uh, to pay the rent yeah. and to buy booze. And I'll just take that segue uh, <laughs> to say that we really appreciate all of you who support the channel uh, in, in various different ways. And yeah. we have, just, like Dave said, we just moved into this new studio. We got really big plans for it. We're in a much better place here. And uh, it's because of you guys, literally. It's a safe space. <laughs> it's a safe space it's for safe space. for bros to drink some yeah. scotch and, and tell um, war stories. And even if you know you don't contribute to our Patreon, please uh, subscribe to our the channel. 
YouTube channel, uh, like the video, um, and get the alerts and share our videos when you can. It really helps us out. We have just hit 50,000 subscribers, which is really a milestone yeah. for us. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, you uh, get access to bonus episodes that we do. And also, you'll get access to all these episodes ad-free. So, like, if you listen to the podcast or you watch this on YouTube, you will see some ads. Uh, if you're subscribing to the Patreon, you'll get the episodes completely ad-free. So, when we uh, when we were at 10,000 subscribers, we actually shaved Jack's head during an episode. <laughs> we said at 50,000 subscribers... My COVID mullet. We would do cosplays. Now, we realize at this point that doing cosplay during an episode would kind of be insulting to our actual guest. But, I don't know, man. I mean, maybe we can be talked into, like, getting done up for a bonus episode on the Patreon. And only if you're a Patreon subscriber can you see Jack and I in cosplay. Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. Well, Comic-Con is coming up in October, right? It is. Comic-Con every year in October. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I took Jack to his first Comic Con yeah, last you year. Did. Yeah, my yeah. first New York Comic Con. Yeah, first New York Comic Con. That was a fun time. So anyway, um, and welcome back. Uh, next, next. I'll, I'll also tease uh, next episode. If you want to grab that book behind you, there, Dave. Uh, Chris Cox, yeah. Fire Force. Uh, Chris served in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, and he wrote this book, Fire Force. He's going to be on next week's episode. I've read a lot of war memoirs. This is one of the better ones. Um, it, it's incredibly well written and just a, a, a <laughs> horrific and terrifying account of war. Um, if you haven't read this book, I highly suggest you guys go and check it out. So we'll have Chris on uh, next week's episode. So Chris Cox, Fire Force, uh, One Man's War in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. I highly suggest you guys go and check this book out. Drew, how are we looking? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, we hear you. Okay. Um, technical difficulty on my end. Can you see me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got you loud and clear. Okay. Lima Charlie. Adapt All good. Here. Okay. Drew, before we go any further, I just want to say that I was a Navy corpsman. I was a dive med tech. So I was a corpsman in the dive community. I feel your pain when it came to promotions in in a in a specialized field with when you had to compete against Corman worldwide. I feel your pain. Well, that makes me feel a lot better, to be honest with you. Um, so I think I'm having a, I'm having an issue with Zoom on my end. We see you, you see like you. yeah, yeah. It's all you. good on our end. D, did okay. you do something? Break yourself. Hang on a second. That's a little attractive, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah. What what what's the issue? Because it all looks good on our end here. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I plugged into uh, power and and uh, I think I'm okay. Okay, I think we can we can continue. I might not just see the split screen anymore because okay. I I might have disconnected from. Uh, my version of the zone. So okay. Oh well, well, we see you, we hear you. Yeah. So let's uh. Well, could you, if if you could jump back into it okay. and, and pick good. up We're pick good. up pick up uh pick up your story. It. Yay! I fixed it. Okay, great. I'm not all effed up. Okay. <laughs> thanks for thanks for covering for me. Yeah, no worries. All right, where were we? 
What, what am I? What am I telling you? You were talking about uh, after nine eleven. You were talking to okay. Mick Mulroy. He was saying that there's this thing popping off. Do you want to get in right. on that? Well, because we had a really good relationship with um, with our cousins, um, our unit did. We were real tight. Um, he told me about it. They, they gave me the details. They told me who to talk to and everything. So I, I ended up scribbling it down on, a, on a, like a piece of paper, some numbers and names. And I remember going, I went back to the, to the, to the command, to the unit. And uh, a friend of mine who's now in charge of the Death Star, um, he was uh, one of my uh, teammates. But he was also the squadron commander at the time. And I said, hey, uh, sir, um, here, what do you think of this? Want to do this? They, they're asking us if we want to do it. We want to be part of this. We're going in before the war, going in 2002, right? And long story short, phone calls were made, relationship, you know, things were vetted. And um, that's the reason why our unit got into uh the AFO uh, mission into the into the the deal before you know we, we are part of the Nile team we went in in October of 2002 and it started doing uh OPE AFO whatever you want to call it uh and uh it was just again you know God loves freaking frogmen and uh lucky right place right time um uh, the rest is kind of history as far as so I you're, that's you're, how you're, we actually got into the whole war beforehand your, your story yeah. intersects with some of our previous guests you brought up Mick uh, Mark Giaconia with 10th group was out there um, who else have we interviewed uh, Sam Faddis was out there I think we've interviewed a number of people who are who are out on that, that initial uh, you know OPE mission into northern Iraq um, could you tell us about how that went from your point of view um, as far as like infiltration and then what the operation, what, what the mission was like? Yeah, sorry. I'm getting myself unfucked here. Yeah, no um, worries. Yeah, so so we um, had a really interesting journey over there to uh, Turkey and then into the, and our whole thought process was we were going to be the, the gateway for the Northern Front. Uh, we we're going to set the conditions, do the collection, um, AFO, OP, for fourth ID was going to come in uh, through the north. And of course, we know that we got the Heisman. They got the Heisman from Turkey. That didn't happen. So yeah. it ended up being that it was us, you know, us and the Kurds um, and 10th Group, which, you know, had a role in the initial invasion anyways. But um, they... Um, ended up taking a bigger piece of the pie because that was it, you know, and then of course we all know about Viking hammer, which what those guys did, we did actually, we planned it. It was uncle, uncle Andy and some other and Nick and some other guys um, along with, you know, and then the 10th group guys came in and fine tuned it to their order of battle. Um, but it just, uh, it was, it was a good time because for three months we were, let's see, November, December, October, November, December, uh, of 2002, we were in there by ourselves, running around doing recons. I mean, 
I ended up lazing 62 dimpies for that. Wow. Not just myself, but, you know. Sure. It was, you know. Um, what, like lazing to get grids or lazing for airstrikes? For for uh, tomahawks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. when they uh, when they fired those cruise missiles, Mark talked about that when we had him on here. It was like, what, they fired like 120 tomahawks that night? Yeah, so um, the 28th or whatever it was. Yeah, so <clears throat> there was 62 tomahawks fired, at least 60-something, like two, three, four, whatever. Um, they were launched from subs, ships, and whatnot. Um, and it was just, it was just most awesome because we were at this Ford little place that Mark probably talks, talks about too. I can't remember the name of it, but, um, and it was like this light show. You could hear it was like jets flying over, but they weren't jets. They were, you know, tomahawks. And then we just watched them hit wham, 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 and, and just waylaid all these, all these targets. Um, and then, then within a day or two after that, we, Let's see. Tenth group might have already been in. Yeah, they were. They were already in. Um, and we had planned the four prongs for Viking Hammer. And then we launched that assault afterwards. But prior to that, we also had <clears throat> this uh, CCT guy. The, the, the true hero of the whole Viking Hammer thing was was the Air Force CCT slash um, combat controller guys. They just were like composers of an orchestra. It was amazing. Like when we did our assault on Viking Hammer, uh, I will call this guy Jack. Um, he um, he had aircraft stacked up like lost like LAX. Yeah. From you, you probably heard the story, and it was poetry in motion. We, you know. we we have talked about the talent of JTACs and CCT guys before and how they are are operating at a level that most of us can't possibly understand, controlling so many different assets at, at a time and being able to guide them on like calmly, co- coolly, collectively, just like rolling in asset like it's just amazing to see them in action. So for uh, folks out there who haven't watched those previous episodes we've done, I hope they will. But Viking Hammer was an operation between U.S. Special Ops and the Kurdish Peshmerga uh, to go and fight Ansar al-Islam in northern Iraq in 2003. They're an Islamic terrorist organization. Uh, the fear was that this terrorist organization could kind of bogged down our invasion of Iraq. So we had to have kind of a northern front in that conflict uh, during the invasion. Um, Drew, could you tell us a little bit about what you did? You sent me some pretty cool pictures, actually, of you out there in the field with the Peshmerga. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what your role was and what you were helping facilitate uh, at that time? Yeah, so it was uh, was broken up by... um... I, I wish I knew the actual order of battle for 10th group. Um, so I don't want to misrepresent that, but it was evenly divided amongst the, the FF, uh, was it 103 or 102 Tovo's battalion um, and the SF guys, and then various levels of Peshmerga and myself, like a, a counterpart of mine and a combat controller. And I was paired up with uh with uh Baffle. No, no, with Jalal. No. Um uh 
There was a, a Palat Talabani, Lashore Talabani. Lahore. Lashore. Yeah. Lahore. Yeah. He, yeah, he, uh, he, he became the intelligence chief, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I was paired up with him uh, and Jack and I, and we were on the uh, yellow or green prong. I forgot. But, but we ended up being with the guys, the snipers from 10th group that were taking out. Uh, they did some great stuff. With the, with the Barretts. What's that? With the 50 cals? Yeah, with the Barretts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think one of the pictures I sent you, we, we were, that was taken from that those that day um that both those were but um yeah so we we fought our way uphill through you know we had we had pulverized a bunch of positions with ac-130s the night before uh fought our way uphill uh we're taking effective fire and and the thing that struck me about that whole thing was these uh ansar islam were clearly not just some forgive my terminology raghead you know just amateurs these people were they, they were trained right yeah yeah they actually had uh defense in depth set up so so as they they knew you know graduate you know obviously we're going to fight our way uphill so they would just leapfrog back to fortified positions where they had weapons and and, and, and it was suspected they had a, a chemical weapons facility in that valley right yeah, yeah exactly so kermal uh was a suspected weapons uh chemical weapons facility. <clears throat> and that just, we, we just pummeled that with 20 or 30 freaking tomahawks. But uh, I'll leave that up to historians to decide what <laughs> those interesting things found. It. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, as we fought our way uphill, these guys leapfrog back and then they would rain down scunion on us and and uh, we had to call in close air support. Um, and I, I distinctly remember this one episode where we had uh, Navy pilots off of uh, Roosevelt or something. There's a female and Jack's talking to her and she dropped her bombs. And then he's like, Hey, I need you to do some strafing runs along this ridge line. And so the ridge line essentially on the other side of it was Iran. Right. So um, she came in and just freaking laid scunning on him, uh, took out some machine gun positions and uh, we were able to advance forward. Um, yeah. But it was interesting to get shot at all day long. And, uh, what was it like working amongst, like, not everybody had the same, uh, you work with different elements, and not everybody had the same sort of actions on type of maneuver, right? Not everybody had the same sort of TTPs when it came to maneuver and fire. What was it like working with a disparate group in an actual firefight when you're moving towards target and trying to, like, coordinate that? Yeah. I got this great picture of uh, uh, Lahore. I know I'm butchering his name. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I probably did too. Was sure. Yeah, um, Balfa's brother, uh, basically. Um, and, and so it's like, hey, you know, it was a bum rush with the Kurds, but the SF guys. And I don't know how it worked out, but it just it just worked. You know, mm-hmm. we just, you know, um, we passed the pass the you know we leapfrog up to you know some some cover and, and, um, you know, those guys were, were charged up. The, the, the Kurds were charged up and, um, commands were passed. And, um, but, but the, the game changers were the air cover and the test group guys. Sure. I mean, without, I was, I was so frustrated that day because I decided, I, cause I had brought my SR 25 with me and I was like, 
do I want to hump this fucking app? <laughs> and uh, all these, these magazines and whatnot, or I'll just take my M4, right? And I regretted it to this day. It's like, because I would shoot, <laughs> I was like lobbing shots at these guys 400, 500 meters away, right? Having to like, you know, yeah. Kentucky. Beach. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, we're, we're fighting uphill. So it's like at some point, I was like, carrying a bunch of shit. So I took my rear plate out and just, you know, toss it on the ground. I'll get it later. So, um, but yeah, to this day, I was like, never go anywhere without a 7.62 rifle in the open. You know, it's funny because we were just talking about the SR at lunch today. We were just yeah. talking about it today, and like my experience of it in the late '90s, it didn't have a Ford Assist at the time. I don't know if that changed, and I fucking hated it because of that. Um, you know, yeah. I'll be honest with you. I, you know, like everybody else, I knew was a sniper. I wasn't, but I was. A, I'm a real good shot, um, or was back then. And I, uh, let me put this. I got a Jerry Barnhart shirt, uh, hat. Oh, nice. For, which, yeah, which Jerry Barnhart was like one of the, you know, he's a, an schools. amazing shooter and one of the principal teachers for a lot of the soft units. And you had to shoot first in his class. To, did you have to, to shoot him or you just had to? No, you, number, just, you just had to be the best of the you group. You have to be in the best of the group to get the hat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So from what you experienced out there that day, I mean, I, I reflect back on what J.R. Seeger said when we had him on that the combination of U.S. Special Forces, CIA paramilitary and American air power was just a very deadly combination. Absolutely. It was. It was. I, I, I just remember, uh, like I said, I, you know, uh, it was like I was a spectator half the time. Right. Um, other than rounds, you know, and the thing that the interesting part is I don't want to sound like there I was and, you know, knee deep in grenade pins, but you know, they were shooting at us and, and the rounds were hitting, but they were also shooting from far away too. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like Fallujah or, or Ramadi or anything like that. But uh, I remember this one occurred taking around the chest right by, right next to me, kind of in between me and, and Jack. And, uh, and I went to him. And pulled open all of his, you know, they had layers of clothes on, right? Because it's like March, right? <laughs> a rack of snow in the mountains, right? Um, it was cold. And uh, I pulled all these layers of clothes out. And the round, the 7.62 round was like sticking out of his chest. It wasn't oh. even like, it hardly even penetrated. Because it's so, it, it bled off so much velocity. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, uh, I should have made it more dramatic, you know. <laughs> It, it was just, it was just kind of funny, but uh, yeah, it's you know we did that. I, I ended up clearing some caves and, and, and getting some guys that were hiding in some caves. You know, a couple couple curds. Um, and and I and I remember leaving that at, at the end of that day. I'm like, gosh, am I gonna? Do I need to write a report on this? Am I gonna get? You know, it was like the dilemma. Now I'm not gonna tell anybody because <laughs> I don't I don't want to do the paperwork. Right. But, you know, so I'm gonna. You know, back then it was like, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Why, why were you putting yourself in harm's way kind of thing? Well, it, it wasn't that. It was more like you just didn't know. I mean, everything was new, right? right. Unless, you, unless right. you were in Afghanistan, you were, you know, Afghanistan was, was ahead of us by a year, right? Right. So speak, half a year. So, um, or a year or more. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was, that was a really good time. Um, 
that was only the beginning too, because then we did other things. Kirkuk, you know, we had to take Kirkuk with the Kurds. Um, uh, it just kept going, and uh, it was um, a real good time with uh, with Tent Group. Um, and I'm looking forward to the reunion. You know, I think they're going to do a 20 year uh, anniversary of that Viking Hammer coming up here next year, early, early, early next 23 and 23. Were there, um, you know, you said that Afghanistan was a year ahead of you at this point in time. Have there been, were there, were there visible changes at your particular unit as a result of 9-11? Did things change? Did they morph, evolve? Yeah, I, I mean, they did, of course. Um, you know, 9-11 changed everyone's life. I mean, for me, example, I was on a, on a, um, my, this one trip I did after doing a bunch of Balkan trips was um, to a, a country, to Georgia, actually. And I remember taking off, I just, I, my, I just gotten married at the time to, to, I just got married. Just leave it that way. Um, <laughs> the, um, a few weeks before and was getting ready to leave on September 9th. And so September 9th, I get on the plane, fly to fly out there to the Caucasus and, um, land you know, because you lose a day when you're, when you're flying that way, right? So, um, check into our place, turn on the TV. I'm with another another teammate, and they we're watching CNN. And he's like, "Hey, man, check out the TV. There's like a plane just crashed in one of the towers." I'm like, "Oh, okay." I'm thinking of you know World War II when that B-25 hit the Empire State Building or whatever. And you know, I'm watching it. And then we, like everybody in America, has a story, same story. We watched the second plane hit the mm-hmm. towers. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it was like, holy shit, we're at war with someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, you know, we're on the horn. We're talking to the chief uh, at, the, at the base, at the station. And uh, next thing you know, we're, we're doing stuff. So um, from that point on, it was, everything was like laser focused. It was awesome. Great times to be alive. Um, you know, we just got everything we needed uh we did a lot of great stuff um i just feel like it was a you know a blessed time to to be an american um so what came for you then after uh after viking hammer that whole 2003 invasion what what was the next step for for you in the in now now in your army career so to speak yeah, so Viking Hammer happened, and you know it's kind of like the you know you didn't really think of it as Viking Hammer. It was like it was like okay, day Just, work, yeah, you know, another deployment, right? We did a bunch of SSE, you know, we we went to all these different places, and and the the stuff we pulled off of all these different little villages, and I mean, we took this this one particular. I should have sent you the picture, man. Um, it's a it's a kind of famous picture, actually. It's sitting in sitting in a conference room up at a, another office. Um, it's with myself, Mick, all the guys from our, our, our team after we just took this little town and me and Mick are holding the American flag up. Oh, I think um, I have seen that one. Yeah, you probably have. It's it's actually in all the Viking. If you go to Wikipedia and all that kind of stuff, you can see it, you know, and all the Viking. And you're, you're wearing Oakley's in, in most of them. 
Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you're exactly. a seal, so you know <laughs> we understand. What's that? I said you're a seal, so we understand. But I'm I'm honestly yeah. just kidding. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got my cool, dude. Always yeah, look cool. Right. Always look and, cool. And and for for our viewers who don't know, SSE is sensitive site exploitation, and it's it's the phase after an assault where you basically search for evidence. Search for evidence, but like search like like the FBI looking for like. You search like I would. I wouldn't quite call it what the FBI does on a crime scene. It's more like it's well, what a it's what a ranger does on a crime scene. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like you're not wearing gloves and dusting for prints, but you're ripping, yeah, ripping off everything the apart. Yeah, like yeah. you're looking for everything you can. And yeah, you, you find, too. Yeah, and you find all their porn. You know, all uh, all the uh, indeed, all the mola. indeed, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, so we did that SSE stuff. I went to to the uh, Kermal place, and it was just devastated. Um, you know, and then some other folks came in, and we just shifted focus to to the uh, the Iraqi Republican Guard uh, in Kirkuk, um, and taking that place with tenth group again. Again, um, so uh, that, I ended up getting the uh, third Republican Iraqi Republican Guard division flag. Took it down from uh, whatever that base was there. Um, and what's funny is like you could see these guys as they left their base, they were like literally taking their clothes off and throwing them off, you know, in the street, their uniforms and putting on, you know, civilian clothes. Um, and this flag was, it had to be 20 feet long or something like that. I ended up giving it to someone in some general and cutter. But um, yeah, we found a bunch of really interesting things there, missiles and things that were interesting, but to, to put it uh, mildly. It's just, it's too bad that the political narrative is what it is as far as the level of evidence. But, you know, there's, there's cases to be made on both sides of WMD. You know, finding right. sarin is one thing. Finding effective sarin rounds is another thing. Right, right, so, yeah. right. Right. Uh, I would say there's, you know. Right. And, and uh, you know, sort of, and again, you know, the, if the premise is yellow cake, then WMDs may not fit that definition. But finding, you know. Uh, UXO. Yeah. F- yeah. Finding, finding toxic gases or finding what, you know, chemical weapons does get downplayed in, in, you know, in, in certain narratives for sure. Yeah. I mean, there was enough evidence prior to that of, you know, MIGs being buried in the desert. Um, and, and, you know, we were, we were played too by, by a lot of shakes. And right. Whatnot, so. Right. So regardless, that's, that's out of my pay grade. At this what, point. Uh, yeah. What, what, what came after that deployment though? What was the next step? Okay, so came back from that. Um, well, before I left, um, I had to go down. So we were we were also planning how we we're going to get into buyout, get into mm-hmm. Baghdad first, mm-hmm. to set conditions for the guys who were you know first ID and or no, one MAF and third ID. Uh, and uh, I ended up uh, going down there with a. A group of guys that Mark was running, um, and um, linking up at, at Baghdad International, mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein Airport, or whatever it was called. Um, 
and doing a little bit of stuff in, in Baghdad before I, I got shipped up. By that point, I'd been there like six plus months. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I left, um, came back home. That's 2003. Uh, and at what point in your career, how many years did you have in the military at 2003? Let's see, that would have been uh, a list in 87. So what, do the math for me, 15, right? Right okay. there. 16, 16 years. So I ended up coming back to the unit and um, taking – uh, oh, okay. So I'm a, I'm a senior chief, right? So here's the here's the the, the, rough, the interesting part of Iraq. Uh, I'm up for master chief, and at the same time, I was married, so I'm thinking about yeah, master chief E9 retirement after 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, as opposed to like putting in a commissioning package, right? It's yeah. a big pay difference for retirement. Yeah, yeah. pay difference, right? So I put yeah. in this warrant. I put in a package for commission, a Mustang commission, and you get to you can check a block for warrant officer or just line officer, right? Mm. I'm like, fuck, I don't want to be a warrant officer. Nothing wrong with warrant officers; they're awesome, right? But they didn't want to run a training stuff, right? Right. Um, so I just thought, yeah, I'll just roll the dice, line officer. So the message comes out. I'm on. I'm on an objective overnight. It's you know. December of 2002, and I'm selected for Master Chief, right? For United. Then I might have the order backwards, but I also got selected for LDO for for commission. Um, so I come back and I have to make a decision. And um, I went to the boss to to the CEO and I said, "Hey, man, if I uh, sir, I'd say, man, sir, if I uh, take this commission, can I stay at the unit?" And they're like, "I don't see why not." Right. Because typically, if you get commissioned, you they send you off to freaking another side of the world. Right. Right. Someone knows who you are. So you show up as this boot ensign or officer. Um, and uh, so one day I'm I'm selected. So, so everybody thinks at the end I'm going to be an E9. And then next thing I'm like, well, I'm going to be an O1. Right. You know, so <laughs> we do this ceremony uh, and uh, I get, uh, you know, go from E9 to or E8, promotable, to uh, O1. And it was like, people are looking, like, well, what do we call you now? I mean, you know, it's, you call me Drew, right? <laughs> so I stayed there for another um, <clears throat> five years. Um, ended up taking one of the other troops, a different kind of troop that did different uh, atypical um, stuff. Did some stuff in some places. Say again. Did some stuff in some places. Yeah, it, it just it was it had different flavor to it. Um, <laughs> and I was the XO for that for a while, and uh, then I did the um, uh, pro dev kind of uh, you know stuff where you know I, I did like punch tickets O three. I mean uh, S three. I was a L and O for for whatnot, but. That wasn't the end of my, you know, utility. I actually did some other stuff. It was with other folks, other agencies. So, uh, but you, you're still deploying in, in support of the war on terror, uh, doing your thing there. And and you said eventually you became cadre for the selection course, right? You kind of came full circle. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what happens is, you know, 
whether it's once a year or twice a year, it depends on, you know, the year and the time. Typically it's twice a year. They'll do an assessment selection. They bring in candidates from the military. They do, um, you know, you do a screening, uh, you assess them, and then you put them through a pipeline um, of, uh, of tasks. And, um, you know, they pull from whoever's available within the squadron, squadrons to uh, um, be cadre. And so that, yeah, it was very, actually, that was very rewarding, you know, to, to do that, to teach people tasks and, and assess them. And now, now, now you're one of the guys in that horseshoe formation around the candidates that come in and. Yeah, actually, I never got to that point. That okay. was really <laughs> I don't think I was, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not that. It was, it was senior, senior folks who did that, but uh, yeah, yeah. I had feedback, I had green sheets. Pink sheets or whatever they're called, I had to fill out. But in this time frame, after I came back from Iraq, that's when I went down to this special finishing school that Dave probably knows about. And I became a uh, certified operations officer. Mm-hmm. So that um, after that, that's when I started doing, you know, CO stuff mm-hmm. in Somalia and uh other other places so that's when i got to you know really do the things that i thought was really were my sweet like, spot like strategic intelligence yeah run sources and whatnot. Mm-hmm. yeah and you know that was uh, a dicey i'm sorry dicey time uh in the history of somalia and the horn of africa but uh very rewarding and somalia you actually you mentioned goody early and that was somalia right um, yes. Yeah. That's regrettably. That's. Yeah. I mean, I just got to tell you, there are very. I, I love my brothers, but of all the people in the world that I know, who are just true superstar, rock star heroes who've been everywhere at the right time, that's just one guy that. Uh, was the was nation he- owes him. What, what, was he was he the Bancroft guy that was killed over no. there? <clears throat> no, he was. Um, okay, I'm thinking of someone different. Sorry. Yeah, he, he was just, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but just, yeah, you know, yeah. He he, you know, he was one of the OPs in uh, Anaconda and um, everything. Every everywhere he went, things happened. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, he, <laughs> And, and regrettably, I don't think he had any family or any in children, but but they, him and his wife were very involved in um, in uh, other, you know, mentoring uh, just, you know, just uh, children that had, uh, didn't have parents or. Oh, or, wow. Or mm-hmm. Yeah. Good guy. That's incredible. I, well, I hope his story can be told in, in further detail someday. Sounds like a pretty amazing dude. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, it was, I, I, I feel like I had like an average career. You know, I mean, you know, you kind of rack yourself, you kind of compare yourself to your peers, um, and that's just the wrong thing to do because it ends up setting you up for um, problems right. later on. You get out, right? You, you question, could you have done things differently or whatnot? Right, and, and you know, that's yeah, that's that's a trap because you 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 are comparing your. I, you know, it's sort of like the whole Groucho Marx thing. I would never be a member of any club that would have me as a member. 
right? Like, like we see ourselves in a different light than we see everybody around us. And so many times you're like, how am I here because of what, right. you know, and it's even like on this show, we have people who come on who have done incredible, phenomenal things. And they say, I don't know if I can be on your show because like you've had some <laughs> just legends and it's like, just you're a legend yeah. too. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, and I think especially in, in special operations, which is an area of, you know, high achievers, people who set goals and achieve those goals. And if you're consistently comparing yourself to the people around you, we tend to diminish our achievements and and see and go, oh, man, then I could have, like, like. Look at what they did. I I, I want to ask Drew about his uh, about post retirement and yeah or, or post army or jeez um, post military and some of the things you did. Uh, let's get into the viewer questions first okay. before before Absolutely. we go there. Uh, let me jump people over. Actually people actually people, people very much care. There's uh, like, there's like seven eight hundred people. They watching actually this thing give live, us so. money to yeah. ask you questions. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, how do I get on that? How do, how do I get in tap into that stream? Man? Um, you, you, actually, we'll talk. We'll yeah, talk. You, and, <laughs> and you're gonna t you're gonna tell us about your upcoming stuff. Yeah, so your your upcoming you podcast. Tap tap into that. Um, that's right. Um, let's talk about. Let's, let's see what your what your what your group wants to know. Yeah, let's see what they got. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Let me uh, do my broadcast voice here. There you go. Um, John Pierre, who just donated, uh, thank you very much. Darren Jones donated also. Both very generous. We really appreciate it. Uh, Jacob Wall, Drew is like the mirror image of Dale Comstock, yet equally, if not more, imposing. Of so, what? He said that you are like the mirror image of Dale Comstock, another guest of ours, uh, uh uh, yet equally, if not more imposing. And I think what, what he is saying is that, um, uh, like Dale is, is very much a large in life figure in, you know, in the way he carries himself and, and deservedly so like he's, you know, been there, done that. Um, and while, and you are humble and yet you are also equally, if not more imposing is what our, what our, well, that's, that's very flattering. Um, and, and thank you for, you know, I, I I feel like, and this is gonna sound corny, but I really do believe that I was blessed. The fact that I came in when I did and have was had the the fortune to walk amongst folks that were just like me, who did amazing things. You know, it's sometimes you just wake up one day and you realize I belong here, you know, yeah. whether you're a major league baseball player or an actor or a pro football player, whatever it is, you just wake up and go, I belong here. This is, this is where I live. I I can do this. I, I can perform. I, I can, and it, it doesn't mean I'm any more Superman. I'm not a Marvel character. It's right. just that you just realize, you know, you're a craftsman. Your right. Trades, you know, you you know what you're doing. Right. Um, and um, there's you know when you when you get to that point where you you trust your inner self. Uh, I think that's what I learned going to the unit. It's like this is I've made this decision. 
because I think it's the right decision. And right. here's why I think it's the right decision. This is why I set the LZ up this way. This is why I aborted this mission. This is why I did this thing. And you're right, because it turns out right. And so when you're when you're fortunate enough to be in that position to repeatedly over years uh, make good decisions or decisions that are productive, or you know, sometimes they're decisions where you walk away. You know, right. you're not afraid to say, yeah, you know what? Right. I don't got a good feeling about this one. And and it takes it takes a mature military unit, which which isn't always there to support you. Uh, like some units will make your decision decision a zero or hero decision. But if the unit trusts you, then they give you the leeway to make a decision and don't like like hammer you afterwards. Yeah, it, to that point, uh, I remember being in Somalia, and you know we had this certain type of mission we were working with with uh uh proxies or whatever and uh i had this uh certain 06 who i love love him to death he's like where the fuck is my you know commando force oh i need it now because he's answering to geos and whatnot mm-hmm. i'm like sir you can't make somalis in this doesn't happen overnight. Into command right. overnight. Right. Yeah. Right. They don't even know how to read a map. Right. You know, and and uh, so you you have that those kinds of challenges to deal with, but um, at the end of the day, they trust you and they, they they let you kind of drive the drive the train. Yeah. No, that's important. Hey, uh, just to add to what D said, we're at four hundred ninety three likes. Hey, if you haven't liked this video, please. Please you're get wrong. us to 500. Yeah. You're wrong. If you yeah, haven't. you're wrong. Um, you're wrong. <laughs> Straight up. Um, and then uh, Adam White, one of our beloved guests, uh, thank you for the donation. He said, great interview. We're all very lucky to have you, Drew. We uh, And keep making it funky and keeping it spicy, y'all. Go, team, go. <laughs> yeah, Drew, we are very lucky to have you. We deeply appreciate you coming on. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, I wish I could have been more captivating and told you some better stories. Next no. time, next time you come here in studio in New York, and we'll sit down. We'll have some stogies and some whiskey. You told us some great stories, and look, I like thank God for Jack because Jack because you and I are we're both like sort of the ADD. Like we go off, and I would have talked to you about like naval sea stories for fucking. You know, two yeah, hours. You're, you're having yeah. a really bad day if you need me to keep you on the rails. Uh, I have a bad day every Friday, just, Jack. Thank you. I'll just Saturday. say that. Yeah, or Saturday. <laughs> yeah. See how bad my day is? Um, is, there, is, there, is there, does anybody have a pointed question they want to ask? Or? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Anatoly uh, Vaskovich, thank you very much. Did you guys spend a lot of time on shooting and weapons in CQT? Was it a good shooting program? Shooting weapons when? Uh, during CQT, like during your training uh, for the SMU. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yes, but but part of the part of the uh, selection criteria was like what you brought to the table, right? So they're not going to teach you what you already know how to do. Um, you're going to get <clears throat> plenty of opportunity like to work with, with, work with guys like Jerry Barnhart or Pat. Pat McNamara or, or or other folks, um, but that's just so you can just 
tweak and fine tune your skills, right? Um, mostly you get, yeah. So we did a lot of uh, foreign weapons stuff and so, um, but maintaining our, our quals was never an issue. If we wanted to set up a shooting course with some expert, we did it whenever we needed to. How, how was it? We, wanted to, we also wanted to maintain, it, it, I, what I've left out is that we worked oftentimes integrated as part of a combined team with our brothers and sisters in blue and green. So, you know, we needed to be able to not be a liability. Just, right. And out of curiosity, like how was that different? Because in the SEAL teams, just like in the Rangers or, or most uh, spec ops units, you were learning to do things as a team. And while you need to be able to do things as a team and integrate, there are also times when you have to do something as a singleton or as a pair. And that's not really something that is so often focused on in these other units. So how, how did you train up for that? Yeah, so that kind of dovetails into my uh, one of my last jobs uh, where we had a special group that did kind of those types of things. We had travel around and be by yourself. Um, and notably, for example, uh, we had a particular rock star who went went on a trip and uh, as soon as he landed, he his spotty senses went off and he realized that, hey, I, he thinks he's might have coverage. Um, and um, sure enough, you know, it could have been criminal. I mean, that's one of the things you, you, you ne neglect. We, are, we always want to look at things to, from the standpoint of, you know, as a hoist right. or foreign intelligence. Like service. espionage, right, right. 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 But a lot of times it's just criminal activity. Right. You know, because you're an American right. in a country that's not. Yeah. The likes tourists. Yeah. And regardless of what it, what it was, you know, he had the awareness, situational awareness to recognize the situation. And sure enough, a van pulls up, guys jump out. Someone puts sticks a gun in his chest and he does the fucking swim move. Mm -hmm. Takes the gun away. Takes a round. You're right. But takes the gun away. Damn. Shoots back at the guys. Right. Kiss, you know, hits a couple of them and they speed off. Then he's got to do the Jason Bourne shit. Right. You know, and he, right. And yeah. he can have, he could have like the embassy X, X fill him, but then he would blow everything. So instead he decides to make his own yeah. way. He, he, he just, he does the Jason Bourne, does, goes to the, you know, gets his supplies from, you know, some pharmacy or whatever takes care of themselves, does the right thing, notifies, you know, we got a procedure. And and to that to, to your point, you know, that's what happened. So, but it was completely below the radar, did the right thing. Yeah. Well, but that's the level of stuff that really does happen. And yeah. and you got um you're proud of when your guys, that, your gals that's, can do that that's super hardcore. Like the way that account's published in the books is that that guy was uh you know, mugged in a gas station essentially by crooks. But what you're laying out is like a kind of a pretty different situation. No, it wasn't a gas station. It was, you know, he's on his way to from the airport to his hotel. And th this, these are not criminals. These are people who know who this dude is and they want to bag him up. Yeah, you, one can one could definitely make that assumption. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, no and, shit, he gets off an is, airplane. Is, is it, at that moment, he doesn't know that he's just responding yeah. to the situation. 
Exactly. Right. And that's the that's where the crucible and Kelly McCann and and all that training, all the combatives every freaking day of the week, three times a week or whatever it was, you know, pays off. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's muscle memory. It's, it's, it's all that stuff. It's, you, you know, you fight like you train and, uh, uh, questions becomes part of who you are. And then, you know, the downside to that is it affects you later on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Post post, uh, retirement, you know, you, you got to face your, face your demons or face your, Right. Right. And and we've talked to, you know, we've talked to a number of other people who have, you know, talked about, you know, that challenge of, of what comes up after, because it's easy to sort of subsume or push down or ignore that stuff when you're still going, you know, a hundred miles an hour. But then Mm -hmm. when it all stops, all of it, then what are you left with and, and what comes up? And did you, that's kind of it with the questions. Did you, did you have to deal like, were there things for you like working through afterwards? Yeah. I mean, honestly, where I'm at in my life right now, these are the things that I really feel are important. Um, and I, and it surprised me, but yes, I did. Um, because when I got out, PTSD was a stigma. Mm-hmm. Right? It was uh, it was something you didn't. You, of course, you did. You thought, oh, only other yeah. people have it. Conventional soldiers have it. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And um, but you know the assimilation part of uh, society. You know, everybody has to go through some sort of. Well, I, I shouldn't say everybody, but many of us high performers. I, I, I want to say, you know, it's a, like we, we always joke about it's a, it's a performance league, right? You, 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 um, you're, you know, you either have a good batting average, you drive in runs or you don't, you know? So, uh, and you constantly measure yourself based on your peers. You get out and, uh, you have to struggle with, uh, you struggle with, uh, relevancy. Mm-hmm. Like I used to always joke about my, my, uh, fresh, my sell by date, my, uh, uh, you know, when you get out and, and you cut away, you've got a, a, an amount of relevancy in the community that unless you strap hang on to another organization, that's going to keep you relevant. You're going to, you know, things are going to move past you. And yeah. fortunately for me, I was able to do that. I ended up working with Mick and some other guys for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, although it wasn't a real long time, I made a personal tr- decision not to. It, it did keep me relevant. I, I did get to go do some things that I didn't get to do in the military that were just awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, I got more trigger time afterwards than I did cumulatively, <laughs> you know, um, later. But um, it, it just what it was, what it was. But uh, there, once there came you, a time Once you leave, you're gone, right? Like the gates close. And you might still have friends, but you're closed off. Yeah. And, and you know what it is? You think, you think it's, you, you don't know how to make, you don't know how to navigate the waters or right? you yeah. find yourself. You, yeah. For many of us, we wall ourselves off because we, we feel like I don't want to call. I don't want to talk to my buddies. I want, you know, I don't want to sound yeah. like I'm going to say something that sounds dated. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I don't want to uh, bother them. And you stay, you try to stay in touch, but but at the same time, you recognize they're still running 100 miles an hour, and and, and you're not. So, um, you know, it, it can take a toll. And 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 uh, for me, it did. Uh, it's it snuck up on me, and um, there when I made the decision to kind of come off the, you know, come off the field and and uh, focus on mar- a new marriage. And uh, having kids, um, it, you know, it was a deliberate decision, and uh, but it also forced me to face some things that you know what was going to happen in the future. And at some point, you real for, for I feel fortunate that I recognized that I couldn't fix it myself, mm-hmm. and uh, I reached out. It, it just turned out it was a, this weird thing. I um, I, I got to say it. I was walking into Wegmans one day and I hadn't seen Re- uh, Rod Gonzo, this one guy, he's an IS guy, an Intel guy, in, in a, co- a few years. And he said, hey, what's up, Drew? And we shooting the shit in the parking lot. And maybe you could just see it. it must have been written all over my face. And he's like, uh, hey, have you ever heard of Headstrong? And I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, well, they got a lot of money. And they're they're helping, helping guys. And just give them a call. And I looked him up, ended up calling him, having this inject with with someone, you know, and just kind of explaining things that I just didn't understand what was going through my head. Um, I never thought about doing anything, you know, drastic. Some, right. some people, right. you know, with 22 and you know, suicide and all that kind of stuff. But, but I realized I just, after 25 years or 27 years of doing whatever I was doing, I was, suddenly I found myself in waters I couldn't control. Right. Somebody else. You know, and so I reached out and talked to this guy, did an inject. Next thing I know, I'm like talking to a psychiatrist. Next thing I know, I'm talking to, you know, getting help. And, and Headstrong was started by a Marine captain or major who um, a bunch of his major, a bunch of his platoon members after Ramadi and Fallujah, um, young guys were killing themselves, suicide because they came back to the world and, and they were, you know, they had issues and they were young, young kids, but you know, the VA just had them a bag of pills. And, right. You know, and uh, so the stigma of PTSD was this, you know, before Nico, NICO was formed for the guys at the tier one units now where you, you actually, you know, get the proper treatment and proper trend, uh, uh, transition an assessment, um, like Mark talks about. Um, anyway, that was before that. I was worried about my TSSCI, TK right. gamma, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, I was, I was worried about like, well, if somebody finds out I, I got, you know, issues, I won't be a case officer anymore uh, or whatever. Um, so this was completely anonymous. They kept, you know, it was all done by big, big deep pocket donors. You got the help you needed without any kind of stigma and headstrong save saving us basically. Um, and um, that's why, you know, I'm where I'm at today. Not that, not that things would have necessarily been, you know, negative, but, but, Fatal, I, just, but, 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 but recognize, right. I can't do it for myself. Right. Right. And, and again, I get what you're saying that you're, you're not, you're not saying that 
maybe there were thoughts of self-harm, but it becomes sort of an isolation and sort of a downward spiral inside of that isolation that just, that just like, it's not necessarily leading to a path that is physically detrimental, but it's a path where you just sort of isolate and keep, you know, push away family, friends, whatever. Yeah, when when you when your when your spouse says something innocent and you cook off, right? And you go on this fucking tirade, right? And you're like, you know, you just like you have this out of body experience where like you don't get it, and then you realize they don't get it, right? <laughs> Why should they get it, right? right. You know, so, they, yeah, they didn't and live what I lived. And thank God and, they don't get it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you realize, wow. Um, Okay, I'm gonna try all these different things. Alcohol. I'll try this. I'll yeah. try that. You know, you do. You do. You go down down all the different rabbit holes, and you realize, okay, you know, this is just an area where uh, I need a subject matter expert. You know, I need somebody else who. You know, I need to. I need. I don't know what I need, but but I need something else, right? Right. And it's good. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot more. We we really progressed a lot since I went through that. So, Drew. Um, I um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I want to ask you something, and maybe this is somewhat selfish uh, of me, but uh, I'll go ahead and ask anyway. Uh, and I don't want to say more than you maybe want to talk about publicly, but you have told something to me that like it kind of resonated, and and, and I can relate to it on a personal level. Like there's a time in your life, like you decide to set aside this life as an operator or a soldier or a sailor or a badass or whatever it is and like choose to be a father and a husband and like and like play this sort of other role in life and i was wondering if you would be willing to like talk a little bit about like that very like kind of conscious decision you made to move from one life to another because like that's something that just it really clicked with me at least yeah uh, it's a great question it's like and and we all have these preconceived ideas of what are life's going to be like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to work for CIA. I'm going to be a paramilitary contractor. I'm going to buy land in Montana. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to get my pilot's license, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And, uh, and then, you know, life throws you a, uh, a softball. You think it's a curve, but it's softball and, uh, you swing and miss. And if you just like paid attention to it and hit it the right way, it would have been the best thing. So you, you have it like for me, I, I, I felt like, uh, I met my wife, uh, and or at the time, um, and we were going to go down this path that from Dave's old place. Um, and I realized that wasn't the right fit for me because the organization was saying your spouse has to basically stop her career. Mm. I'm going to be blunt about it because it needs to be said. Yeah, I think so. She's, you know, I I look at my, you know, she's a rising rock star in her field. Right. Globally. Right. And, you know, within the, the organization was saying, yeah, you know, but, but she has contacts, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, right. whatever. All these foreign contacts. And right. I thought, I put myself in her shoes. Like, what if somebody said that to me when I was in the beginning of my SEAL career? Yeah. You... Would, I, would I have 
<laughs> yeah. How would I feel today if I had given all that, all of right. what I've experienced up? Right. Right. And um, I felt like that's not fair. I got to live my career. I got to do exactly what I chose to do. And I had a, I had a, a great career. And um, I, I wouldn't want to put that on anybody else. So I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to decouple. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to impose that restriction on my significant other and, um, and be a support element. Uh, in the meantime, so I started doing, you know, IC work, training people, doing whatever. And it was hard. It was really yeah. hard. Yeah. It was really hard because, you know, we're talking, things were still very kinetic, very going on. And we'd been a coin advisor in Afghanistan for a year. And, and that was very rewarding working with Marines and uh, working for McChrystal and Petraeus. We haven't even talked about that. That's another podcast probably. But, um, you know, you have to like some, at some point you just got to make the decision to pull the cutaway pillow yeah, right, and hope your reserve opens. Mm-hmm. You pull that reserve pillow and thank God the rigor packed it right. <laughs> I saved my life. Right. You know, and then you have to deal with everything after that. And, um, uh, the transition was was a challenge, but uh, I'm, I've embraced it, and now we have, I have two wonderful children that I just adore, and I have, my wife is uh, a rock star, and I'm just glad to be her EXO and support structure. So. And you know, we've kind of talked about that before. That you know, especially for special operations, right? It's a volunteer service; nobody gets drafted. Then in spec ops, like, then you're volunteering two times or three times. And people can say, thank you for your service. But at the end of the day, we are all doing what we love. And we are living, in a way, a, a, a pretty selfish life. You're we living are, the dream. We are living our dream. And, right. you know, and what gets left behind are the wives and the children when we're doing that. And... Yep. You know, they're the ones who, you know, the spouses are the ones who wonder, like, what's going on when we haven't been able to contact them for two or three weeks at a time, right? Or, or whatever. One more question. One more mm-hmm. question. Okay. And, and for you to make such a, I don't want to say mature because obviously you're a grown man, but, but well, it's a mature decision. It, it's a mature decision to say, like, I've been living my dream. And now if I, like, if I want to keep living this thing that I've been living, then I have to sort of ask my wife to stop living her dream. Right. Yeah, and it, yeah, that, that was a non-starter. Um, it, 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 but, but that it's, it's, a uh, it's a complex thing, right? I don't think I made it with the clarity I'm, I'm, I'm re- relaying it to you. Okay. It was, it was a lot of unknowns. Sure. Right. It was, it was intuition. It sure. was more like instinct. It's like, I need help. Right. And I didn't even know why, because I was like, I know guys who did 300 hits, lost guys in their arms, you know, people died in their arms. I mean, I, I didn't have that kind of experience. Right. I had a lot of very right. interesting experiences i mean stuff i can't talk about right now but but they weren't traumatic so so when it came time for me to deal with traumatic the aspect of like i don't know i mean you know when i'm asking people when when the psychs ask me the question 
so what happened? You know, what was a traumatic episode? I'm like, I don't know. I just like, you know, how many people did you kill? Well, I'd give a number, right? Yeah, but that doesn't bother me. You right. Know, it's like, I, I guess I don't have, you know, but then at the end of the day, it's like, how many people did I have disappeared because of what I did? Or how many people, but, you know? And, and that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, don't even, I don't even care about right. that the aspect. The, the point is, we end up at a point at a crossroads and whether we understand how we got there or not is important, is not important. What's right. important is what you do when you get to that. Why in the road, the crossroads and you recognize I'm lost. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And, and I need, you know, this is the point where, you know, I got to ask for directions or I got to ask for help. Right. Um, and you don't know what that help is, but right. you've got to at least ask. You know? And, uh, and um, yeah, no, we get that. I mean, I think that, and that's been a common thread too, that like people want to think that like, whether it's post-traumatic stress or, or what, whatever it is that there's supposed to be this big moment when your best friend died in your arms or whatever. And there's not always that moment. Like it can be a cumulative effect. It, it can be time. exactly, you know, it can be going from a hundred miles an hour, always on the go, always like living on the edge to nothing and all of a sudden like there are these like shock waves and reverberations that follow that that there's there's not a singular event what's yeah what's so it, to that point what happens is this uh, this is this is why i'm a big fan of um andrew hube and some other folks podcast there's a chemical change that happens in your body when you're constantly used to being in a high th- high stress environment and performing at a high level, your body changes, your body chemistry changes. Okay. Your cortisol level changes your, you know, your, your heart rate. There's so many things. I mean, when you used to fighting at night and sleeping during the day, you're Mm -hmm. a vampire, you're taking Ambien, you're, you know, you're doing amphetamines to do whatever or whatever on Mm -hmm. occasion. But at the end of the day, you're just used to a different body chemistry. Your body chemistry actually changes. And, and you come back to to a normal life, so to speak, um, and you're challenged by that because now all of a sudden everything about you, you know, you look across the street, different activity, you walk into a grocery store, you're checking your corners, you know, where's the exits? Um, okay, what's this driver going to do? You know, all these things that happen that um, it's, it's part of a chemistry thing. And uh, you you know, we all we all have to deal with that in some way or another, or to some degree or another. And and you don't you think that you're in complete control or command of yourself, and and then you're faced with these, and you realize one day that you know you're barking at your wife, you're you know you're doing all this weird shit, you're hyper vigilant, whatever it is, mm-hmm. to alcohol, pulling people out of their cars on the road, you know, yeah, whatever happens. I mean, you know you're getting angry at folks or you're just thinking, you know, know, I can go on, but, but the point is it's not that you're fucked up. It's that you've also been, if you know, over 25 years, you've been conditioned, your body chemistry has changed your neurological aspect of your life. You know, you can't one, you know, the guys who took down, took down captain, you know, rescued captain Phillips, you know, 48 hours later, they're driving through, you know, the, the drive through it at, at uh, Taco Bell. Right, right. 
Right. <laughs> it's like right. You, know, you just shot some guy in the face, and in in forty hours later, you're, you're yeah, yeah. right. In, in in a world that doesn't. I mean, thankfully, I'm not like putting civilians down for that, but but have no concept of that. You went sort from of thing. you went from Baghdad to your living room, right? Twenty four hours, right? Or or yeah. the Hooters or or the you know right. you know Sizzler, whatever. Yeah, exactly. What's what's the last uh, question here? Um, the last question. Thank you for Lawrence says for both the donations. Is there any credibility to the rumors of the Kandahar giant <laughs> and the Taliban fighters needing eight to nine bullets to go down? Due to captagon or other substances, beats. Yeah, I beats don't you. even know how to answer that. I I will tell you this: that as far as uh, Afghanistan goes, when um, a year ago, when things were going sideways in Afghanistan, I felt very betrayed as a U.S. service member who watched a lot of, who, who knows of, I mean, I've been to too many funerals, right? Yeah. And when that happened, I, I jumped on the, the the Vepro bandwagon to help get, get folks out. Um, and... Um, To speak to the the issues of, of uh, PTSD, I feel like betrayal is something that people need to need to check out. You know, when when you're when you sign up, you're you're defend the Constitution, carry out the orders of the day, you know, blah blah blah, and you want to do your job, you, you kind of don't care, but you don't want what you do to be completely meaningless discounted right you know is worthless and um <clears throat> as far as that you know mean type question goes um people should recognize that when young americans i mean the the, the 13 marines and, and all of, I, I share something in common with 13 Marines that died in HKF. They did that because they were looking at, you know, they, they believed in what they were doing. They believed in the brotherhood. They believed in, you know, and, and uh, represent the United States as a true um, beacon of hope. And um, every now and then we need to take a reset. And, and recognize that but if we don't if we don't have those values anymore you know we'll, we'll, what's going to fill that void right and you know it's interesting because our veterans have always sort of led the charge in that from vietnam like bringing home the vietnamese uh, bring when Mont i say bring home jim morris was yeah a big the part vietnamese of the mountain yards nuns that that sacrificed so much to work right. with us um, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, like the Kurds during the first Gulf War, we we completely left them to their own devices after they trusted us so much. It it you know it, it's easy to blame a, a a a politician for those issues, but it seems to be a trend of 
of, of the American government, like, and, and generally it takes the veterans that worked with, with those indigenous forces to, to like lead the charge on, on getting them the sanctuary. Uh, Drew, could, could you talk to us a little bit about, um, what you're doing now, some of the things you have planned for the future, um, what, 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 what's the next step? What's the next move for you? Yeah. It, thanks, Jack, um, for, again, just being a maestro. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've kind of like tried to oh, say I got out in, in, as an imposter, uh, a lieutenant, <laughs> right? <laughs> to be a um, commissioned officer in the Navy uh, as, a, as a Mustang. To retire as an officer, you have to do 10 years as a, in service, right? <clears throat> now I was I was um I was, I was pretty banged up by the time I got out. Um, I'd had like four shoulder surgeries, a couple of knee surgeries, uh, ankle plates, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and when it came time to retire, I was like I was all thinking about, hey, I'm gonna go and uh, work for Wexford, work for AWG, do this and that, you know, yada yada, make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it came time to retire, I was doing my uh, out physical and um i was pretty pretty effed up and my squadron surgeon to his credit said hey you know you ever thought about a medical retirement I'm like well that's for guys that got blown up or whatever mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not for me <laughs> he goes no you're you know the definition is can you do your job right and so anyway one thing led to another so he helped me do a med board medical retirement board and it, it just did turn out that i was I was pretty effed up. I was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, yeah, yeah. Steroids and 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 Motrin and and PRP injections. Yeah, one to another. A little and, vitamin uh, M, right? <laughs> what's that? A little vitamin M to get you through your yes. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was living on it. <laughs> um, so I did a med board, and uh, I, you know, the, the medical board said, "Yeah, you're." you're pretty fucked up, dude. Uh, we're going to medically retire. <laughs> well, I got 22 plus years of retire- uh, servicing. How's that going to work? So what I thought was going to happen is because I wasn't going to do the 10 years as, as an officer, I was going to have to revert back to master chief. Right. So the poor unit, they're like thinking they're planning my retirement as a master chief. I had to buy the uniform, the whole thing. And then, you know, Bumed comes back and says, oh, no, we're going to retire. When you get medically retired, you retire at a, the highest pay grade or the highest rank yet, pay grade. So for like nine months, I was at E9. And then all of a sudden, I was back to O3. Right? Wow. So I retired as an O3. Um, that was the best thing that could happen. So I retired um, with 100% disability for a number of reasons. Um, not the least of which was the things we've been talking about uh, amongst the physical stuff. But uh, I went back to school, got used my GI Bill, got uh, got my degree uh, in history, a bachelor's into history, and then I got a master's in uh, international affairs, and uh, you know turned my life around. So I'm not sure if I I'm on track for answering your question, mm-hmm. Jack. Refresh my memory, but uh, you're on track. And taking care of your kids, uh, yeah. being a family man, 
and you told me that you want to start a podcast yourself. Yeah. So, so was the next step was like, what am I going to do with myself? How do I reinvent myself? And and I I struggled with the whole, you know, IC world, paramilitary world, case officer world, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, these, I have these two great kids, you know, I, I'm, I'm blessed by God to, you know, meet this woman who's just so intelligent. I mean, uh, and, and we have two wonderful children. And then uh, suddenly I realized I had this wonderful opportunity to, to raise kids and uh, be present. I, I know so many friends on both sides, Army and Navy, who in their, in their weren't present, weren't able to be present because they had career conflicts. And then, you know, their families were challenged by that. And if it wasn't for their, you know, a real strong spouse or, or whatnot, you know, it, that would, that determined the success. But back to, you know, now I'm, I've got this opportunity and <clears throat> very recently I've realized that I think what I would like to pursue is, you know, the kind of the vet TV version of what we've all learned from being in special operations and having families, right? You know, <laughs> how the, the lessons learned, the, the pros and cons, the, the funny stuff. And so I'm going to do some what I call combat dad, basically come, you know, podcast. And it's, it's to talk to vets. You don't have to be a combat veteran necessarily, but what did you, you know, how do you deal with, family issues? How do you deal with, you know, the challenges of, of raising children? Like my kids don't know, know nothing about my past. Like they're, they're eight and six years old, right? <laughs> I'm an old man, but you know, and, and, and they, I might as well be a world war two veteran. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but now they're asking questions, you know? Yeah. And, and I realized all the mistakes I made, all the things I learned, all the things that had I been a good dad before or in the military, I would have been a better leader. Right. Right. And, and um, how does it feel as a dad when the, when your kids just won't follow the chain of command? Oh, geez. <laughs> when, when, when you realize this, this is part of the back backstory to you know, headstrong and, and getting help. Right. When you get in the grill, you get in your kid's grill and you're like, blah, blah, blah. Right. And they're like crying, and you're realizing. Did I not lay out my task conditions and standards for this task? Right, like, what, right. what, what, what is the right. problem? I don't yeah, know. here's the commander's intent. Here, are your left and right limits. Get the fuck, <laughs> get it the fuck and, done. And you, and you try everything, right? Like, okay, if you make your bed, you get to put the green check mark on the magnetic board. If you do right. this, you get to put the. G- At the end of the week, we tally all that shit up, and right. you get to, you get to have. Uh, you know, if you if you met the standard, you get to have a movie night. Well, that sounds great, right? But it doesn't work, right? And then you realize all the shit going on is a matter of me not trying to overanalyze it, but just sitting there, grabbing my kid and putting my arm around him. And yeah, 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 yeah. But, but Drew, you know I mean? ha- Drew, have you tried the the um, the dunk test? I mean, have you tried the hundred mile? <laughs> 
and the start the, 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 the drought proofing the, the dog test with that amount of tape the circle like maybe that'll get them in line it, the problem is it's not them it's me right yeah, i know it, yeah it's it's uh you realize it's like you know garbage in garbage out and and when you think you're they're not paying attention they are you know so um I, I just, I, I just want to just say, I'm, I'm blessed to have the opportunity to be present. The, so the fact, the fact that I can, I get to be Mr. Mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm blessed, man. I, I just, I can't tell you. I, I learn more from my kids than, than, than anything. So uh, I, I have no complaints. Uh, but I'll, I'll, but so dad is coming. The podcast. Do you do you have a channel for that? Because we want to like we want to like hook you up like like we want to we want our viewers to raid your very first podcast and and make you a like you know unlike us with our first with our ten viewers on our first podcast us getting drunk and whatnot like how how can we help you make it happen? Um, I I I wish I'd had the um, combat dads is coming. Uh, it, you know, I'll, maybe we can do a like a shorty in the future. Okay. Um, and and I'll give you the links. Um, also, Ajax Shrugged on Locals is going to be a uh, a link you can post, and that's where I'm going to talk about more serious stuff. Okay, know, great. Yeah, you know, let it, let, it, let us know when the podcast comes out, and I, I would love to direct people. We, we will that. plug the hell out of you. Uh, we yeah. love you, and we you know we, we wish you all the success. It, and it's an important topic. And you know, it, Drew, I, I know, I, I know, we kind of just sort of like hit like the wave tops of yeah. your career here, and there's so much more to talk about. I, uh, but we've kept you for like three hours here at this point, and I really appreciate you being so patient with us and coming back on a Saturday to do the show. Um, it's been great. This has been a great conversation, man. My pleasure, dude. I mean, uh, yeah, we I have mean, one last question that came in. Um, and it's from Love Star, and thank you very much. And guys, please, uh, we're not accepting any more. Like, we don't want you to like give us. We'll take your money, but we won't be able to ask you more questions after this. Um, many new school labor unions are using uh, UW unconventional warfare tactics to conduct collective bargaining. How do you feel about homegrown submers- homegrown subversives challenge authority? With an asymmetrical mindset. I don't know. Sorry, late question. What to make of and, that? And that could be like any from from any angle. Uh, and homegrown subversives, but also challenging authority. Which you know. So go ahead, please. Okay, so one of the things I learned, um, you know, all, we all come into the military. We all have our <clears throat> preconceived ideas of of um, what we want to accomplish. And then reality sets in over time. Um, I did 14 deployments, right? Um, not every one of them was combat, but but at least, you know, many of them, 10 of them were, you know, high threat slash, you know, whatever. What you, what you learn from that kind of repetition is to recognize not what you think, but what you see you know, get to give the ground truth. And um, sometimes the ground truth doesn't dovetail with the commander's intent. Um, So I would say um, maybe to answer this question, 
you got to dig deeper than the surface level of, um, you know, how that applies to domestic aspects. Like, I, I'm, I'm inferring, I, I'm assuming that's what, it's, what we're talking about, right? I, I, I don't even know what that yeah, guy's I, talking I, about. Yeah, I'm assuming that because it's homegrown sub, uh, subversive. Yeah. So I, I'm yeah. assuming we're speaking domestically. Yeah. So having seen what an insurgency is, having seen what counter, you know, what terrorist cells look like, having seen all that stuff, we're not seeing any of that level of stuff in the United States. Um, I'm I, I, confidently I can tell you there is not that level of concern mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, there are people that are disgruntled, mm-hmm. they're upset, and mm-hmm. you know they're making their their note. But but the actual scale or scope of folks that need to be dealt with on the on you know that are being compared to you know other. Uh, other elements is 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 incorrect, right? And it's it's, it's unfortunate that that narrative is being, in my opinion, being promoted. It's a it's a propaganda slash political type disinformation, as far as I'm concerned. Now, are there people that that have those intents or those thoughts? Absolutely, right. But is it but is it a wide scale enough to be considered prevalent? To be considered, you know. Uh, an insurgency or or something to be concerned about. I, I, I yeah, it's not it's not like AQI in America. Point. Yeah, right. And I mean, and, I, I I was a coin advisor in Afghanistan. Right. And at the end of the day, it's like I, I know counterinsurgency stuff, like you know, as well as I know how to kill bad guys. So. Right. And coin and coin is counterinsurgency for for our our people who may not know. And and so like what people may see whether. Their, their, you know, whether their viewpoint is from the left or the right, like they see the far right and they see the far left and they see sort of this propaganda and this information that is sort of being put out there. Um, but, but what you're saying is it that's more of an information war that it's not that the effort or, or the ground gained is not similar to what you would actually see in a counterinsurgency from either side. Yeah. Is that fair? Uh, I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there's just we could do a whole podcast on counterinsurgency aspects, um, but at the end of the day, this is garbage in, garbage out. If if someone's telling you something and you choose to believe it without without challenging the source or or doing your own uh, due diligence, then you're just you're just you know, a sheep at the end, you know, in my opinion, are we at a, a difficult time in our country? Absolutely. We're, we're polarized. We, we need to go back to civility. We, we need to work hard on, you know, taking care of our neighbors, our neighborhood, our cities, right. Our, our counties. Right. Um, and finding common ground because we all share 90% of the same common ground. Right. So, right. Most people are just trying to put food on their table, make sure their kids are safe in schools. Like, like they're trying to live a normal life while a, a small minority on each side is sort of controlling the dialogue in a right. way. Right. Yeah. You know, so I, I want to, you know, be fair to your audience too. So, um, you know, I could, I could tell war stories all day. Right. You know, 
of there I was. And maybe maybe that's maybe that's better, but but uh, we're all Americans and, and we need to like look for common ground. I mean, take care of your neighbors, you know, pay attention to who lives next door to you, you know, you know, know what what what's going on and, and just be a good person. Yeah. Drew, uh, I really appreciate your time tonight, man. And um, I hope we can do this again sometime. I hope we can talk you into uh, joining us in Brooklyn sometime. If you care, if you care, if you care to join the evil evil empire, yeah, uh, at some point. My wife, my wife uh, just took my son. She's taken my daughter and my son up to New York twice now. She she does these getaways, right? Yeah, yeah. Was a one on one. You let 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 us know, Drew. We'll talk. Yeah. And I, and I, I keep saying I don't fucking want to go to Manhattan again. <laughs> you don't have to. No, you don't have to. That's the beauty of it. You know, yeah, you know, like you can, I don't want my car broken into. Right? No, you know, no, you know, yeah. Well, we'll get you an Uber. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave, leave your car, leave your car in, in a secure garage. We'll get you an Uber, and uh, yeah. So, folks, next <laughs> next Friday, Chris Cox, author of Fire Force, uh, served the Rhodesian Light Infantry. We'll have him on the show. Drew, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for Drew, being you're amazing. With us. We deeply, deeply appreciate you coming on. Everybody, we'll we'll keep on the lookout for Combat Dads and and Atlas. Not shrugged. Ajax, Ajax shrugged. Ajax um, shrugged. All right, we'll, we'll give you Hey, thanks, guys. It's been my pleasure. And we'll see you next Friday. All right, brother. Thanks, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.